I'm a dude, and I'm inviting you to join me on a podcast about brews. Does that include stouts? Yes. Yes, of course it includes stouts. Like I was saying, join us every Saturday on the journey hey, hey, into... Hey, co- wait a minute. Do you, do you guys do anything about, like, IPAs? Yes. Like that? Yes, of, yes, of, yes, we do IPAs. Okay. It's, okay. It, yes. Anyway, join us on the Journey into Comics Network for Brews with Dudes. Whoa, whoa, po- hey, hey, do you... Have you guys ever... Do you care if I bring some Zima on? Yes, I care if you bring Zima. Zima doesn't count. Zima... Oh. Zima... Dr. Dongo. Anyway, join us every Saturday for a podcast that delves into the craft brew world. The following... The following... The following journey into comics. 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 Network. 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 Production. Production. Hey, hey, this is Josh Richmond, and you are listening to the Voice of Survival podcast, exclusively on the Journey into Comics Network. What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another episode of The Voice of Survival Podcast. I am your host, Nate. Today joining me, the host of the sessions, the musical renaissance man. You guys have heard him all over the place. He is Christian James Hand. Welcome to the show. Uh, well, that's, uh, that's a hell of an introduction. Thank you. Hey, man, you well-deserved. I mean, <laughs> well, thanks. I think, I think your career kind of precedes you. And the things you've done, things you've been able to accomplish, uh, your journey is long and winding. And that's actually why we're here today. So for most listeners who don't know, I met you through listening and being a fan of the Jason Ellis show. And that is its own whole separate thing we'll probably get to at some point in this conversation. But at the very beginning, I need to know mainly from the listeners, less for me. Where were you born, sir? Uh, I was born in a town very probably actually considered a village uh, in Kent uh, in England um, and then uh, from there I went to Libya for about six months then I went to Africa for about six seven years and then went back to England and then in 1983 I came to the United States of America to Port Jefferson Long Island gateway to the North Shore and then I went to college outside of Manhattan and then I worked in radio in the same town uh, Port Chester uh, in Westchester County, New York, and then I moved to Los Angeles to Pasadena in 1997, and then into Hollywood proper in 1999, I think. Wow, so you have literally your entire existence kind of pinballed around the world. Yeah, I was a 20th and uh, 21st century gypsy for a while. Awesome, so uh, do you have siblings? I do. I have a younger sister who's three years my minor and uh, light years ahead of me as a human being. Okay, okay. Uh, so you got to grow up with your sister, obviously. 
pretty tight knit home life in the years you guys were moving around? Um, yeah, I think you know one of the th- you know inevitably you the teenage years are always a shit show because teenagers are a shit show, um, and I think that we you know we weren't uh, we weren't that different from everybody else in that way, but f- you know for an ish- for a good. Probably till you were like 13 or 14, she was uh, the apple of my eye. And I think that, you know, one of the things that happens when you spend so much time without a real discernible idea of what home is, you, you know, you, you are, your home is the people around you. So it was the four of us pretty much, you know, we didn't have grandparents and uncles and aunts and all that in America. So it really, you know, our family was just the, the pure nuclear unit of the four of us. Wow. So you guys are very, and and it's evident through just knowing you as a person that you are very close-knit and love your family and they've they've definitely impacted you in your journey so uh you know you okay so you grew up you spent seven years in africa you said was that correct is it the right timeline it was like six or seven years in uh, botswana now i know you were obviously a little bit younger during that time but do you remember any of those experiences growing up there um i actually sat down with my mom uh, a few years back and we just started you know batting ideas backwards and forwards or memories backwards and forwards and it was sort of with her prompting and filling of details it was actually interesting to see how much of it I did remember so you know even though it was basically one through seven there's still a lot of formative information that is uh, brought to the fore in that time and uh I definitely remember more of the more of the events, maybe not chronologically, but I have a lot of you know image memories that I didn't think that I had. Wow! So so it is something that definitely it, you've, it's obviously carried on with you. Yeah, I think that there is a. I think that you know when you're in, you know, your childhood development from in those years is really when a lot of foundational neural pathways are being established, and I think that there was a certain. Um, I think there was a, a familiarity with, um, you know, I, I had a, I was, I had a nanny who was a young black girl. I'm guessing she was, you know, she, from the pictures, she probably couldn't have been older than maybe 16 or 17, maybe, who I spent a lot of my time with because my mom and dad were working. So, you know, I have, uh, I think that it was one of the things that has uh, allowed me to uh, not generally give a fuck about who somebody is and what they look like or where they came from uh i think that's a pretty well said it's a pretty special uh relationship to be able to have to skin color and ethnicity is you know twins of such an early age just to have people be people so I, i think that was probably the greatest gift i don't like to wear shoes still um, and I think that that is uh, heavily formed by running around without shoes on for such a, a large amount of time. I do very well in the sunlight, and uh, I don't like being cold. You would not like it here right now, let me tell you. It's no, like I don't, seven uh, here today. It's, uh, yeah, I can't really... Uh, I don't have any fucking truck with, with any cold at all. It's one of the reasons that I, I now find it very difficult to imagine living anywhere but Los Angeles, unfortunately. Yeah, you kind of get pigeonholed into like, well, this is the best climate, so I'm I'm going to just stay here now. Uh, well, it is the it is the brunt of Hotel California, right? As you can check at any time you like, but you can never leave. Yeah, wow, there that's a uh, carries way deeper meaning for you now as an adult, huh? <laughs> well, yeah, you kind of you know you understand that the 
the metaphor is uh, the metaphor plays itself out daily. Oh yeah, you know absolutely. So let's get back into the journey. I um you you're seven, and then what was your guys' next journey back to London? Yeah, we went to well, we ended up going to a place called the. Uh, we were in Stoke on Trent, which is sort of uh, uh not it's uh, it's sort of like out in the 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 secondary cities that were established in the the outer rims of England's countryside. Um, and then we okay. were there for a while, for a, I guess, I don't even really know, probably about a year, I think, maybe slightly more. And then we went into London proper. And then I lived in a, tra- uh, a town called Kingsbury. And we were there from 1970. I'm fairly, we were there for the Silver Jubilee, which I think was 77. So we were there definitely from 77 through about 83. Which wow, was six so you, pivotal years of being in uh, an incredible, you know, it's like one of the things that I'm very grateful for is to have been in England from 77 through 83 is to have witnessed fucking unbelievable music daily. The know? musical, yeah, I was going to say the music climate there is at that time insane. I mean, the, what no, is, it, ever, it, was, just, it was everything. Like every day you turned on the radio and it was you know like what the fuck is an adam and the ants what the fuck is duran duran what the fuck is gary newman what the fuck are the sex pistols what the fuck are the uh, is madness or the specials you know it was just like this unbelievable rich potpourri of every genre and they were kids like i go back and look at them now and it's like they weren't 30 year old people they were you know 18 years old making this fucking ridiculously forward-thinking groundbreaking music and there were so many genres i mean new wave encapsulated everything from Elvis Costello to, you know, Duran Duran, you know, it was like that, this wide swath. And then you had, you know, like Adam and the Ants and all these other like characters that would, you know, Toya Wilcox and, you know, so then, and then you had the Americans where you had Blondie coming over and the talking heads. And I mean, it just really was absolutely fucking epic. And, and I am, uh, you know, I consider myself to have been incredibly blessed to have been actually allowed to be in each of the countries and the towns and the cities that I've lived in since my formative years have all had hugely pivotal musical uh, moments. You know, like coming to America in 1983 is just as MTV takes off. So suddenly, you know, I came from England where we had one half hour of music TV once every week, which was a show called Top of the Pops, which would feature lip-synced live performances in the studio and you know videos of the people that were in the top in the charts at that point and that was it and then it came to america and it was just like holy shit 24 hours a day of all of this and of course at that point mtv would play anything except black people um but yeah you would turn on mtv and it would be everything that you could imagine and then you know i was also exposed to american AOR, you know, um, album-oriented rock, where it was the the John Cougar Mellencamps of the world and Asia and GTR and, uh, you know, like all of these sort of uh, massive rock bands that didn't really make a dent in the UK but were huge over here. So at the same point, I was being exposed, exposed to like both of those diametrically opposed quadrants at the same point and then being in New York for the rave culture and for hip hop starting, you know, I mean, 1983 when I get to New York is just as, as hip hop is really beginning to, and rap is really starting to come out of the Bronx and, and 
you know, nobody on Long Island knew about that. And the only reason I knew about it, I was listening on Saturday nights. I would listen to DJ Red Alert, DJ from a place called Red Zone, I think it was, from 10 until 4 in the morning on Kiss FM or whatever it was. And I would sit there and just listen to this shit with my tape deck and pause record and be grabbing, you know, like it was the first time I heard Schooly D's PSK, which blew my mind to smithereens and, and none of my friends knew what hip-hop was none of my friends had any clue because if you didn't live in manhattan or in the bronx uh, at that point then you didn't have any experience of that so i was also at ground zero for you know for the explosion of rap and hip-hop in culture and then be a, being you know getting to be part of that with the grave diggers and then being able to be part of electronica with being responsible for having you know shows on the air that there was only two or three of us in the country that were doing electronica mix shows in the 90s and I was one of them and you know was, I've been really blessed to have been allowed to to be in the room for some really cool moments and uh, that's one of the things that I'm you know stupendously grateful for is that I was given that opportunity in the English those six years of England are epic epic years. I mean, they are some of your most like um, influential years in the moments when you're really developing into who you become. So it really doesn't surprise me that your fate as a person is wrapped in this thing called music. You know, it's uh, it seems like to me it's just uh, it's really bizarre to think that you. It's like it when you jumped from place to place, music had these explosions and evolutions. And you being kind of a traveling man as you were growing up, you soaked it all in. And I think it influenced you to, to take risks on different kinds of music that you were listening to as it was all evolving and changing. Yeah, I, I didn't have uh, my, you know, my dad, my dad was a was a music fan and he didn't seem to he obviously didn't push as far as I ended up pushing. You know, I don't know the thing I don't think there's many metal bands that my dad would be into or industrial bands or dance projects, but you know, my dad was a you know, a, a wide open music fan, so the sounds that were coming out of the living room at my, you know, my house in London and my house in in Long Island, you know, my dad was was always finding new shit and playing new shit and there was you know it was never an idea of like only listen to one genre of music because that's all it has to offer and then i think i just you know i i just extrapolated even further when i found that that you know i could generally find something in every genre that i would enjoy like there was something that was going to react for me and i feel bad for people that don't have that experience because you're cutting out so many amazing songs and incredible memories and you know genuine like happiness <laughs> you're, you're you know you're you're your subsistence farming off of such a smaller crop if all you're doing is listening to one sort of genre of music it doesn't make any sense to me um, but i know that that's you know that's not that's not the norm so i think that it's also part of the sort of you know the sideways blessing of being an Asperger's person and finding peace and tranquility in music and then being allowed to experience that peace and tranquility on a number of different genres with a number of different sounds is, you know, it only means that the, the medicine is the medicine's greater, to be honest with you. It's more, it's more easily administered too. Cause you can, you have a wider, wider pool of things you can find 
that you enjoy, which is excellent. To, and to also go into those discovery, oh, honestly, if I may, is that you know it's when you when you have a bunch of other lanes that you can go down, it makes music discovery even more invite you know exciting because you don't you haven't pigeonholed yourself. So if you find a fucking hip hop song that's dope, you're like, oh shit, this is fucking great, and then a metal song comes on, and you're like, oh, this is an entirely new soup. You know, it's like it's a different yeah. meal. This is you know, it's not like one slice of pizza for the rest of your life. You can have many different if we can make this metaphor unbearable you can you know it's a whole buffet of many different things that you can try and and as i say i feel very bad for people i feel sad for people that don't have that experience of music so in that six years that you you spent in london proper uh with the music booming and changing there uh did you start playing an instrument was that a i mean did that happen earlier than this time or i mean did that influence you playing music i guess that's a another great segue question yeah, I was, uh, you know, the one, another great thing about England at that point is the arts. And the arts is is differently respected in the UK than it is in Europe, in America, which is one of the things I found when we moved here. But there was a really great music department, and one of the things we had to do is we had to take an instrument, and I, I wanted to take the saxophone, and uh, my dad had watched me sort of pick up a number of things and put them all down and was like, I'm not going to, because you had to buy an, a saxophone to learn it. My dad was like, I'm not buying you a fucking saxophone, take an instrument that they have there. And it was, you know, this why I have this relationship with Phil Collins that is, you know, a, a, a source of much amusement and amusement to most, but he really, you know, in the air tonight, that when that drum fill first happened, that was suddenly like, okay, then I want to be a drummer. And I, you know, started playing drums when I was, I think, probably 10 or 11. Um, and wow. percussion and all that sort of shit. And there was only two of us. There was my this guy I'm friends with on Facebook still, this guy Martin Potter, and he and I were the only two drummers in the lower third, which was... You know, the, the English high school is six years long, so the lower third is the first three years. The upper third is the second three years. So we were the only drummers in the lower third. So we played in everything. We played in every orchestra, every sort of band. And then we did, you know, we had our own bands on the side. And I was heavily, you know, influenced by Phil, but I was also, you know, I was a huge ABBA fan. So I was, you know, I would, I the way I learned was to not take lessons. I would just sit with headphones on and just play along to songs and you know that was a wide diaspora of of sounds whether it was the who that my parents had introduced me to or abba who i'd sort of discovered on my own and phil and anything else and i would just sit there and play drums for hours to these songs and that um that experience of being in orchestras and being in bands was also you know it it um it was very formative in how I would learn how to then put my own music together and other people's music together when I finally decided or found myself becoming a record producer of sorts. Um, so all of those moments were so, so pivotal and being, you know, being allowed to learn an instrument and drums to me are the most, you know, it's the, it's the backbone, obviously. Um, so to have been... Ah blessed with being able to learn how to do that correctly um was you know that was a massive gift as well 
Oh, and man, to pick up the drums at an early age where you're limber and your body is able to learn, like, much like your story, I did the school drum program thing. I, I, I wanted to play trumpet, but I couldn't blow the lips. I could, it wouldn't happen. So, like, here, take drumsticks. This, you'll probably be good at it. Uh, I, I didn't think I was very good at it, but, like, one thing I noticed, and in, 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 in I wanted to ask this, is, like, you said you were in all the different styles of bands. So you were doing jazz band, pep band. Did you do the marching band as well? Well, we didn't have those in England. I did marching band when I came to America, but in England we had, you know, there were like different, there were different orchestras. So there were small orchestras and bigger orchestras. And then there were percussion groups that were solely just percussion instruments. And we would have whole pieces. And then there were smaller quartets. I didn't get into jazz just because it was, that was an upper six thing. Like once you transitioned into the upper six, it uh. could start to get more complicated. But for those first three years, you know, it was every probably every day after school was some sort of musical experience that was different than the one prior because, you know, your responsibility in the instruments you're playing in a big orchestra are completely different to a small uh, like chamber orchestra thing. You're not using timpani and that sort of stuff. You're using smaller and glockenspiel and, you know, like triangles and shakers and tambourines. And then in a percussion group, you could be charged with just playing the guiro for a whole song or, you know, a tambourine that you play every fucking th four and a half minutes. You know I mean? It's, you would learn, you know, like you would also have to learn discipline and self-control and, and where your pieces were. And then I was also blessed that I had... I had difficulty reading music, and in the um, in the percussion group, uh, Mr. Nichols was fairly um, draconian about it. But there was a the Jenny Wade was the teacher of the other orchestras, and she basically allowed myself and Martin to make it all up. So we were allowed to sort of improv whatever the fuck we wanted to over the top of these established pieces and we got away with murder and it was really you know that was a great tool as well to to not be you know, playing everything that was being dictated but to also be able to add your own flourishes because this teacher understood that you know what we were doing was actually really cool and that's i mean to think to allow kids to improv over those pieces when they were 12 years old i mean that's kind of that's kind of a lot of trust to put in a bunch of you know get a pair of dickweeds who you know haven't really proven anything yeah, I mean, it it, it 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 really also gives a kind of a testament to yourself, though, because they did trust you, and you were able to do something which kind of probably helped you further in your life and maybe took away some of, like, I don't know if you ever had it, but stage fright and things of that nature might get stripped away at an early age if you're told, like, hey, just we trust that you can do what you're doing. Yeah, I never experienced stage fright's a thing that always confused me. I've never experienced I've, I've, no performer, you know, there isn't a performer who doesn't experience some sort of, you know, anxiety and or butterflies. But I've actually been, you know, lucky, I suppose, in many ways to have not had stage fright be something that uh, that struck me. I think it was more to your point was, you know, it, it, it bolstered the confidence. So it allowed you to feel that, you know, you had... I had an ability to hear the music and translate what I wanted to into that music that wasn't unpleasant and wasn't unwelcome. And it was like, oh, so, you know, without knowing it, my instincts at that point were pretty good, uh, which only serves you better at later points, you know, through my career as things, which I guess I have now had one at 50. I've had a career. So as my career has gone on, I think that understanding and trusting in those instincts 
has become something that I've learned to do, but when I wasn't learning it, and it was just pure, you know, my instincts were running on instinct. I think that that was that did me a great service. Wow, that's that's very well said, and and I think it like helped you to to find confidence in your voice is another way to say that. Yes, very much so. Uh, so before we get out of this one little section here, in your age twelve and whatnot, and you're doing your lower thirds. Did you start bands, bands like music, like rock and roll music bands, or were you still just like kind of staying focused on the school side of it? Was this a little bit too early in this in the story? No, I played. Uh, I, I, there were two bands that I played in. One, uh, one was with a, a kid around the corner from my my house who lived in these tenement flats, and I believe that his name was Trevor, and he played drums. And uh, I had a vintage carbuncle, which is the old squeezy horn that they used to have on vintage cars. Like, and if you took the squeezy horn off, you basically had like a rudimentary bugle. So my first okay. band was called H2O, and it was years prior to the New York hardcore H2O band. So they're lucky we didn't grab the name. Uh, and it was me. <laughs> it was him on drums and me. <laughs> On, on rudimentary bugle and the two, we played one show and I think we played for like 15 minutes and it was so spectacularly avant-garde. I'm so fucking bummed that there's no video of it because the, the thought of like these 12 year old kids playing whatever jazz we were coming up with that was, you know, it wasn't even songs. It was me just blasting on a bugle and then this guy just smashing away on drums behind me. Um, that was spectacular, and I'm really bummed that nobody's ever... There's not even a photo of that band. And then the second one was a band with a bunch of my friends uh, that we called Rigor Mortis. That was... Um, we played one show. We'd been given like a 45-minute time slot, and the only song we knew how to play was uh, Craftswork. Uh, no, it wasn't. It was we, we wanted to learn She's a Model, but we couldn't, so we learned Tainted Love by Soft Cell, and we did this whole song, but we didn't have keyboards, so I played the entire melody line on a xylophone, uh, and it was fucking atrocious, and we only knew this song, so we basically played it for 30 minutes before they asked us to stop playing because we didn't have anything else in our set. Um, and it was a, another avant-garde art piece that I wish we'd known that that's what we were doing because 30 minutes of tainted love on a xylophone can wear down anybody but uh so those are my two my two band experiences in the uk and then when i went to long island i played drums constantly i was also in orchestra but the problem with that in in junior high was i walked into the fucking orchestra room and i think there were 11 people in the percussion department and i hadn't earned my stripes so i didn't get to do that and then i did marching band in high school which i fucking hated because that just seemed to take all of the fun out of music um, oh, yeah. So I just played drums on my drum set, and then I had a band called None of the Above, which was uh, with a bunch of my high school friends, and I think that lasted for junior and senior year. Um, and then I, you know, I played. I played in a bunch of bands in in college. I jammed with some people. I, I played in an industrial, a hardcore industrial band for about five years. That was really uh, an amazing fucking experience, um, and. Basically, every time I left a place, I left a drum set behind it, and then somehow I would end up fucking drumming again. And I, you know, like I was playing with Ellis and those guys. There was a one point in LA where I, because a, a, you know, a dependable drummer is very hard to find. 
Um, and I'm a True. pretty I'm a pretty dependable guy. So uh, I would. There was one period where I was playing in five bands, um, and they were all friends of mine's bands, and I wasn't being paid for it. It was just like I'd produce their records, and then we couldn't find a drummer, so I would end up playing fucking drums for them. And uh, it's. Um, it's a complicated relationship that I have with that fucking instrument. I'll tell you that. So we'll definitely get into you playing in five bands with your friends. I do want to briefly mention, it sounds like you kind of became Bob Ross or Bob Rock. rather. I was, uh, I was Chris Rock for a little bit. The white version who wasn't a stand-up comedian. He was a drummer. So yeah, I was that, uh, I was that guy for a little bit, but I love uh, that instrument. And I think it's one of the things that, uh, helped save me mentally during high school because I do think that coming home and getting to burn off a significant amount of uh, mental pressure um, by playing drums um, was very, very helpful. I also think that I played drums to pre-recorded material. I never just sat and played like if my friend Elmo could just sit and shed for hours, and I can't do that. I would have to sit and play to recorded music, which meant that I was you know when when you do that you become your tempo becomes regulated and you know you can't get faster and slower so i think there was also a, like a biometric thing that was calming me down there with my musculature having to be controlled and uh it also allowed me that when i ended up playing with industrial bands then we were playing to tape i can play to tape really really well and a lot of drummers have a have difficulty with it because it's actually stopping you from doing all the things that instinctively you would do which is to speed up when you go to the courses and slow down whereas when you're playing to a tape you don't have a choice man you know that machine is commanding your your body so i think that you know part of that experience of being able to go home and play drums every day uh was something that saved me to be honest with you ultra ultra therapeutic it seems like mm -hmm. uh so we need to make the jump because we don't actually know the answer to this question yet how do you guys make the decision or what decision is made to go from london over to long island and and jump from <clears throat> from the uk to america uh it was twofold one of the problems was that maggie thatcher at that point uh was uh i think the first third of her prime ministership had occurred and it was pretty obvious that her entire reign was going to be spent destroying England and um, being sociopathic in her relation to the working class and the middle class of that country and it was and all of the social safety nets were being taken away and everything that made life comfortable and and safer was going to be you know pulled away because her whole thing was you know this fucking ann randy and ronald reagan fucking republican bullshit of like you know everybody is pulling themselves up by the bootstraps and all that shit and my parents didn't like that and also i had been you know in england there used to be a test called the 11 plus, which you took at 11, which basically decided if you were allowed to continue in high school. And they got rid of that, but then they kept these things called O levels and A levels. And, you know, your O level is your first series of tests, and then your A level is your second series. And these basically decide if you're going to go to college, what level of college you're going to go to. And that decides, obviously, what the rest of your life is going to look like. And I don't test well, so I had done pretty poorly, and I was going to be getting streamed pretty low um, in my O-levels, and my parents were really concerned about what that would mean for my future, and my dad and mom get itchy feet, 
And we'd been there for long enough that they had decided they wanted a new adventure. So it was, uh, my dad got a job offer from a friend of his that he'd known in England to move to Long Island. And that was what we did in 1983. What was that transition like for you? I mean, culturally, I know that obviously growing up and being young and in Africa and and moving to, to London... Uh, and being able to kind of transition where you are, it shouldn't seem too hard to imagine, but I feel like there's still quite a few cultural differences. Oh, it was massive. You know, I mean, if you want to know what England looked like, there's a great remake of uh, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy starring Gary Oldman, um, and that movie is what England looked like. You know, everything was fucking tan or brown, or muted grays, and it was like everything was made out of fucking corduroy. Uh, you know, like the houses were made of corduroy, and the cars were made of corduroy, and everything was fucking corduroy. And then, you know, I step off the plane in Long Island, and I'm living in a fucking, literally a picture postcard town. I mean, the ferry from Bridgeport, Connecticut, came to Port Jefferson. We had this beautiful main street, you know, with uh, it was fucking animals made out of seashells available at the local shops. And it was hyper color and everything was, you know, like football, like a like what like an American football team. Like, just imagine what that looked like to a kid that was used to rugby and cricket. You know, it was just I was in and we'd also, you know, at that point by the 80s, by 83, we'd absorbed. A lot of American culture had made it to the UK. A lot of those TV shows like The Love Boat and Dukes of Hazard and all Wonder Woman. And, you know, we so we'd seen that stuff. So it was the culture shock was significant and profound, but it was also a considerable amount of excitement. But it was really rapid that I realized that there was that something fucking didn't smell right in Denmark, you know, like I got off the fucking plane and I go walk into the high school and there's one black kid, you know, and I had left England, which is where my school was full of everybody. We had fucking Jamaican kids and West Indian kids and Pakistani kids and Indian and, and like Indian Indian kids and Japanese kids and, you know, all of the Chinese people, like all of the, not so much the Japanese, but, you know, a lot of the cult, the commonwealth countries were allowed to just move into england and they did for the opportunities so you know that was how i was exposed to reggae music and and you know those cultures and and those flavors so my and the other thing is that you know one of the great things about school uniform is that it democratizes everybody because everyone looks the same so you don't get the social strata of you can't afford this cool clothing or you can't afford this or you don't look like that. So cliques don't really exist in the same way uh, as they do here or did here. And, you know, so walking into high school and seeing that all of a sudden what label you were wearing was important. And if you had your popped up collar on your eyes odd and Sperry fucking topsiders, you were a preppy. And if you had a Iron Maiden patch on the back of your torn up leather jacket or jean jacket, you were a burnout. And, you know, I was none of those things because I was a, you know, I was just an English dude who had come from a culture where being a Swiss army knife was a benefit. And I found myself in a place where I was like, these people just want to fucking pigeonhole everything. So there was, there was a significant amount of culture shock in that way. But I also think that, you know, I was, Having come from England, I was smarter than a lot of the people that I went to school with. 
and that's just the fucking that's just the fucking blunt and smart in that I had seen more of the world. I had already been to Europe a hundred times, you know, like my family. I'd been to Germany and Italy and France and Belgium and all of these because you can. It's a fucking ferry ride away back in the day, you know. Now it's a train ride, but it was a ferry ride, so I was so much more well versed in the world. And half of the people, if not not even half seven tenths if not more of the people that i spoke to of my peer group had never left long island and you know Man, it was, you know it's pretty obvious that i had my experiences of the world had had i had much wider open eyes than most of the people that i was experiencing in my in my peer groups and ancillary people that i would bump into it's like you came from a literal cultural melting pot a place where as you said, everyone was accepted. You were going to school with all different kinds of people from all backgrounds, and it didn't matter. It wasn't important. It was just growing up. Yes. And you come here, and it's definitely not that. Everyone talks like it's that. It's so segregated. You you know, I love that you brought up the fact that the, the cultural difference between um, having clicks based on attire versus not having clicks – so you are kind of that's a stressor that comes into your life all of a sudden but at the same time in a lot of ways i feel like your your coming to america experience also had to be a little bit freeing because you could at that age go i can be whoever the fuck i want to be like i don't have to be exactly like i can be more confident in this way and i don't have anything preceding me i guess is the way i'm trying to say that yeah it was you know, those are difficult years for anybody. So it was very painful to be different. It was also one of the reasons I got rid of my English accent so aggressively was because for a while I was the cool new toy. And then after a while I wasn't and I'd never experienced being the cool new toy ever before because we were just kids in school prior. And most of the people I went to high school with, I'd gone to primary school with. So I'd known them for years um, and we all sort of like, you know, up, upgraded together. Uh, and I came here and I was supposed to go into ninth grade, but I would have lost half of the credit year because I came in Christmas. So they put me in eighth grade. So I would have people to go to ninth grade with because the ninth grade was a school, you know, it was a high school that was separated from our junior high. So there was a lot of feelings of, um, I, you know, I felt ostracized as well as, enormously accepted and wanted and then when the toy wasn't really new anymore it became more difficult and I experienced that um, but you know I'm I'm fairly resolute you know the English we have an indomitable spirit and I think that I was you know I was up for the fucking challenge but it was hard wearing uh, there was a lot of um, the bends did you know? I did experience the bends because there was a lot of of um, there was a lot of things that I had to come to terms with very quickly. You know, one of them was that I realized that in America the arts aren't nearly as respected as they were where I had come from. You know, like actors and musicians are legitimately rock stars in that society. Like it's a completely cool thing to go and be an actor. It's a completely legitimate line of work to go into being, you know, a musician because it's, you know, they are seen as the cultural movers. And over here it was like, Oh, those seem to be childish fucking distractions. And I, you know, I was a, I was very, I, I enjoyed acting considerably in England and I was very good at it. And I was getting opportunities that were leading me to think that it was, 
probable that when I left high school, I would want to continue acting. And I came here and it was, you know, acting was for faggots. Honestly, you know, like that was the thing is that, you know, queers did art and I stopped acting and I went backstage and became a set designer. And that was what I went to college for. That was how, you know, technical theater came into my life. Um, and I certainly, you know, don't, I'm not, I don't think that I would have, I wouldn't have followed an acting path had I stayed in America, but I'm fairly sure that had we stayed in the UK, I would have, I would have maintained acting and I would have continued doing that for sure. I was, I was going to ask that question. So that kind of wrapped itself up because getting opportunities and, and having a love for it, is that something that, um, the acting, I actually genuinely didn't know this about you. So this is really a cool little extra segue here, but, um, was the acting, is that something that you feel like is unfinished business for you maybe that you would like to dip your toe back into that now? I mean, especially being immersed in that whole entire universe of Hollywood, California. No, because one of the things that I cottoned onto pretty quickly as well was that I was, I was, I'm much more interested in telling my own stories with my own voice than telling somebody else's story with something else's voice. Oh, well said. I love you know, that. So that was, you know, when I started writing in high school, in college and really started looking at what I wanted to do and trying to work out what that was, I, I didn't, I didn't enjoy the experience of becoming somebody else. It doesn't, it didn't make sense. It, it made significantly more sense to me to be able to translate my own experience because that to me, there was a level of altruism to that because you could also then help to educate people or show people that you know your struggle and their struggle were the same and you could you know like it, it i don't i don't find inspiration in in an actor's portrayal of something but i find something inspirational in a storyteller's telling of their own story and their own struggles you know that to me is how you can inspire people with performance and I, i've luckily enough found myself you know where i now am strangely performing but it's performing in an entirely authentic way where i don't even i don't have any protections at all it's just simply me hanging out and talking about the music that i'm in love with um so you know i do i do do a show but i don't consider it a performance um so that was well that said, was the yeah. relation that i had that was the relationship that i found myself having with dramatic arts was that it was i, I had no interest in telling stories that way it was too limiting. Again, you like to have variety as your spice of life, which uh, I think has been coming through the story quite clearly. Now, you're in high school. You're having the struggles of fitting in. You're Now, you said this. I'm curious. You said you were pretty quick to try to shake your English accent. Was that like a, like a thing that became, I don't know, talked about at your school and maybe put more light on you like man what's going on you know yeah there was you know the, I was the new English kid and an English accent you know it wasn't long before you know after we arrived here that my parents and my sister and I worked out that Americans would buy anything from a fucking English accent like we could literally poison you as long as we told you we were poisoning you with an English accent you would be happily poisoned so it was, you know, like, this is fucking, this is ridiculous. So there was a lot of like, oh my God, say this word. And oh my God, Julie, come and listen to this guy. And it's the, you know, it is the single greatest weapon that a guy could utilize in order to get laid in this country. I mean, the fact that I don't have it has significantly affected how much fucking poon I have gathered. 
Um, but you know, like that, that also can get pretty boring. And it was, uh, you know, like one of the things, like one of the, one of the great, um, sort of complications of my psyche is that I don't actually like being the center of attention. Um, it makes me very uncomfortable unless I am the one who is dictating when I am or am not the center of attention. And one of the things about having that accent was that I was the center of attention, whether I wanted to be or not. And then when, as I say, when I wasn't the new kid anymore, like halfway through second semester or halfway through first semester, like a couple of months in, when it was like, oh, that's just the English guy, it, you know, I, I experienced something I'd never experienced before, which was to sort of suddenly have people not give a fuck that I was there and, you know, like just go back to their normalcy. And then it was just like, oh, it's like, you know, when you get a new fucking dog and then after a while, it's just the dog that runs around the house and you're like, oh, yeah, I love the dog. But it was really difficult for me to transition into that. And also it made me uncomfortable that people wanted to pay attention to me for no other reason than because I had an accent and I decided very quickly that I was going to, I was going to shunt this fucking thing as, as rapidly as possible. Uh, and it took a while. It took a, it took a while, but eventually obviously I pulled it off. Uh, I mean, uh, there were people who, when I came to know you as a person, had no idea that you None. were English. No. So you you did a fantastic job, I would Thanks, say. Man. I mean, uh, for for uh, in the wrestling world, they'd call that you did a damn fine job of kayfabing because no one had any idea. But nope. Uh, so high school, you're going through it. You're doing bands and things of that nature. Had you started to find any modicum of success doing music? It, it, did that happen at an early age, or was it not until you went to college and started to kind of find your own path? there before you started to feel that side of music um i don't know i mean i've always been you know radio is actually my number one love i i, I really have such a fucking it's not even like to call it a passion is stupid to call it a love is stupid it's just it it, it to me is what i if i could do anything for the rest of my life it would be to continue to do radio and whether it's a podcast version or radio or whatever, because I love it. But I, the thing I loved about radio is that it's the only remaining media where you and the person who is experiencing you are going through the same chronological moment at the same time. If it's three o'clock when I'm on the radio talking to you and you're sitting in your car, it's three o'clock when you're sitting in your car and you get to translate and transfer and talk about your experiences in real time at the moment that it's happening for all parties involved. So I really loved that, and I still do. Um, and it's with it's with an aching heart that I see what has happened to radio, um, especially in this country. But I, I so I loved radio. I used to make pretend radio shows where I would basically have a mixtape that I would talk in between the tracks. So I was creating radio shows. I wish I still had them. I don't know where they are. Um, but OG I did podcasts. Let's yeah, keep it basically. Real. Yeah. It was like the a C, a, you know, a max LC 90 fucking mixtape, uh, radio show podcast. Um, so I, I was doing that. I didn't, for, I didn't really, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do when I went to college. I went to be a lighting designer and I had, my plan was to mix the two where I would actually become a lighting designer for concerts. And that was how I thought that I was going to be able to get the two, the two things to be one was that I would be able to do it that way. Um, 
and then pretty quickly when I got to college, I sort of decided that I wanted to get into set design because it was more creative for me. Light was too limited. Um, but in, you know, in high school, I, I really didn't have any clue as to, you know, I didn't, I, I knew that I wasn't going to be a drummer in a famous band. I knew that I wasn't going to, you know, like follow that path, uh, because it seemed so different than the way that you would do it in England. I had no idea how you would even make that operate in America. It was just so fucking big. I mean, you have to remember I come from, you know, my England's the size of fucking Rhode Island. <laughs> you know, it's like we're, it's so small. And to come to this enormous fucking landmass and to have no idea how you make that thing work. So I was fairly sure that I wasn't intended to be in a band. I wasn't fated to be a musician of that ilk. Um, which is why I decided that, you know, like a great way to get the two to work was to become a lighting designer and have the hope of being able to go into ultimately ending up doing touring lighting design. So Man. that was kind of, that was the only avenue that I could see to keep it, to keep the two things in my life uh, and to make a living out of it was to do it that way. But there was no, I didn't even think I'd get into radio. I didn't think that I would be, you know, producing, making music in any way, shape or form. I just, you know, I, I thought that my job was solely going to be sort of behind the scenes. So going to college, <clears throat> set building and things of that nature, uh, what were some of your side jobs just to kind of get you by in those times? Um, when I was at college, um, well, when I first went, trying to think so I went to school in 87 I graduated from high school and I didn't have a job my first freshman year because or you couldn't because my pro one of the reasons I left that program was that it was it was fucking it was like Oliver Twist man it was just we would we would start the day at eight in the morning and and you would leave the set shop at 11 o'clock at night and then you had to go do your homework. And it was brutal. And I just had no interest in that version of a college experience because I had already, I'd done a, a, an intern, a, an apprenticeship at a, at a local theater at my, in my town. So I was already designing shows when I was 16 years old. So I was like, I went to college where these fucking assholes were telling me, like, go and count bolts and bring me this. And I was like, I'm, I'm actually... I know that I'm more talented than you. So why the fuck am I in a position of subservience to you? Because if we were in a professional theater organization, everyone would have cottoned on to the fact that you should be bringing me the fucking bolts. And the only reason I'm bringing you these bolts is because I'm a freshman and you're a fucking junior. Like, this doesn't make any fucking sense. So I ended up dropping out and I dropped out... Um, the end of the first semester stayed on campus unbeknownst to my parents and basically did nothing for the second semester um and then dropped out lived illegally on campus in my girlfriend's dorm room thank you amy johnson and thank you cheryl for letting that happen and i worked yeah. at a i worked at a local sporting goods store and fucking hated it and after the you know the conclusion of that halfway through that year of me not being at school it became pretty obvious that i needed a fucking degree so I uh, immediately uh, reapplied to go back to school and went back in and did it as an English lit major because I was, you know, I was pretty confident in the thought that 
having a working knowledge of the most spoken language in the country is never going to be a bad thing. So, or actually the most spoken language in the world, sorry, was not going to be a bad thing. So I went to be an English lit major, which would, you know, could allow me to do anything. And at the same point, it, ga it gave me the time to become an RA, and which got my school, my housing and my meal program were paid for by the school. And I went and worked at the, took over and, and ran with two of my friends, the college radio station. And then I played in bands. And I, then my job was I worked on campus at the local, at the little general store and then also became a DJ at a local nightclub and a lighting guy at a local nightclub. And I, I got to do a lot of different shit that I never would have been allowed to do had I stayed as a lighting designer um, in the design tech program. Um, so my, I went back. I had none of the credits transferred because the lighting department, the, the, the theater tech department didn't have anything that would transfer into the other department. So I basically started again and had a whole new four years. And that four years was absolutely fucking... Perfect. You know, it's another thing is that I, I, you know, I, by the time I left Long Island, I was ready to get the fuck out of there. But those fucking four years, man, of being in a small harbor town on, on Long Island on the North Shore in a picture postcard world with all of that amazing music that was happening and all of those, I mean, that's like, I literally was living the breakfast club and uh, the, you know, all of those John Hughes films, pretty in pink and all that stuff. Like that, that was the life that I was living on long Island. And the music was just as powerful and just as beautiful and just as incredible as this, the music I'd left behind in England. And then there was a lot of that English music was coming over and following me, you know? Um, so, the four years of purchase were fucking magnificent. Plus, we were close to the city, so I would go into Manhattan and experience Manhattan. And, you know, I was playing in a uh, hardcore industrial band, so we were cruising through the underground industrial scene of New York at that point, which was amazing. And then doing tours and going to Chicago and recording with our heroes in wax tracks with fucking ministry and all those dudes. You know, it was, it was a really... That four years was, you know, I mean... Uh, ultimately ultimately man i'm just unbelievably grateful for all of these fucking years because each of the segments is just as perfect as it could have been and those four years at sudi purchase were perfect and you know the ensuing years afterwards like when i graduated i you know i had built and designed my college radio station like we had had a shitty studio and i got us the budget and i designed it and installed it and then when i installed it i installed it with one of the guys from this company called radio systems who made the mixing desks and all that shit and he was like wow you're really good at this and they didn't realize that when you know when you're a college organization you get given a budget each year and then you have to reapply for a new budget the following year. But if you haven't spent all of your budget, then you lose the money in your next budget. So the only way to increase your budget was to spend all of your money. So we spent a fucking huge amount of money on this refurb of this studio. And when I was talking to this guy from the company, I was like, yeah, dude, like campuses across the country have this money to spend. So they basically created a college department for me and it was just me and I was going to be in charge of designing and installing and selling these fucking recording of these broadcast studios for colleges across the country I did Nike's installation at their campus in, pa in Portland did a bunch of cool shit and then 
they offered me this job and it was going to be really well paid. I was going to live in Delaware and I have money and a fucking, you know, a uh, 401k plan and healthcare and all this shit. And then just as this is happening, I had through a friend of mine did lights for a, uh, a sort of hip hop ish organization called PM Dawn. And when it came time to graduate, uh, my friend Tim came to me and was like, hey, do you want to go on the road with PM Dawn? Because we're going to go out for a tour. And I was like, how long for? And he was like, I don't know. It could be three months, could be a year. So I had this fucking like pivotal crossroads sliding doors oh, moment where it was like, take the fucking gig in Delaware and be set or go on a fucking gamble and just see what happens if you go on the road with fucking PM Dawn. And the choice to me wasn't even really a choice. I, I had none. There was no way I wasn't going to go on the road with PM Dawn. So much to my fucking father's chagrin, I said, I'm going on the road with PM Dawn. And I ended up traveling for about a, almost two years with them and becoming really good friends with Prince B and um, having unbelievable experiences with them. And then when that tour ended... I came back and I was like, fuck, what am I going to do now? And I sort of banged around a little bit in New York doing some technical theater stuff with friends of mine that had graduated. And then I started working at Prince B's record label. Um, and I was there for a year, maybe maybe two years. And that was how I got on the road with the Gravediggers because they were signed to that label. And the label wanted to put somebody on the tour who was from the label so that I could report back as to what fucking craziness I was experiencing on the road, which was absolute craziness that I was experiencing on the road. But I didn't tell the label because it, I pretty quickly fell in with the guys in the Gravediggers more than the record label side of it. So I then had this incredible experience of going on the road with the fucking Gravediggers and doing these tours of America and these, I mean, you know, we did a fucking tour of Europe where it was us and Jeru the Damager and Gangstar and Arrested Development and Public Enemy and Ice fucking Cube. I mean, for like two, a month Whoa. and a half, two months of fucking in Europe with that. I mean, it was magnificent. So then that ended and I was... It was either continue the life of going out on the road, which I didn't want to do because I knew that once you started doing that, it's very difficult to stop. The money is so fucking good. The travel is addictive. Everything in that life is addictive, including all of the drugs that you're going to be doing to be able to deal with the crushing boredom that is the bits that aren't being on stage and having the show running. And I came back and, and the record label actually offered me a, a pretty sizable promotion that I turned down because I didn't want to be at the record label anymore because one of the things that I had been doing, unbeknownst to myself, one of the things that I had been doing is I'd been trying all of the different avenues in the music industry to find which one I wanted to make a career out of. And what I had found was every single one that I did actually didn't give a fuck about music. <laughs> you know, Every single one well of these said. things had music was not even secondary you know it was in the record label world the music is like fifth down on the fucking list of things that are important so i had to leave the record label because it just didn't feel honest and it wasn't about music and i started working at this weird little nightclub um by my in the town that i lived in because one of the things i had done is when i graduated from college i i decided that on un, unlike my family i was never going to move around I was going to fucking put down roots, 
my best friend lived half an hour up the fucking highway. Um, I lived in a cool little fucking town. I had, you know, a great circle of friends that I cared about. And this was going to be my home now for the rest of my life. And I worked at a little nightclub that was then a live music venue in this town um, that was run by a fucking crazy dude named Fred with one eye. And he had this beautiful 500 person venue and he put incredible fucking bands in this place. Like the Goo Goo Dolls when they were nobody, Face to Face when they were nobody, uh, Soul Coughing. You know, I got to see all of these bands at the beginning of their careers, sort of. And. It was great, but I, I, you know, I, I didn't know what it was going to lead to. I just sort of did it until I could find out what I wanted to do next. And the next thing that happened was a new radio station started and they used our club as like the live venue outside of Manhattan that like you could put 500 people into a club when the Goo Goo Dolls could only sell 500 people. So it became a great partnership. And through that, I met the kids that worked at the radio station that threw the T-shirts out. And I was like, hey, how do I get that fucking job? Because suddenly I was like, oh, maybe this is radio. Like I'd done a radio show at my college station and I thought that that was my, you know, radio had been done for me and I was completely okay with it. But the minute that this radio station showed up, I was like, fuck, maybe this is how, you know, like radio has shown back up again and maybe this is how it's supposed to happen. So I started being a van driver, throwing out t-shirts and doing fucking promos and blah, 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 blah. And after like, I think probably four months we were driving back to the station and the rumor had spread or the truth had spread that the after one of the afternoon guys had been fired. So they slid everybody up on the roster. So the overnight guy, my friend Mike became the night guy from seven to midnight. And then the, the guy who had been seven to midnight became the afternoon guy. So now the overnight slot, which was midnight to 6am was open and they offered it to this guy who arrogantly decided that he deserved more than that so he turned it down thinking that they were going to counter offer i found out that they turned it down drove into the station went to the production guy said i need to do a fucking demo i did a demo i dropped it on the fucking program director's desk and an hour later i was hired to do the overnight so Whoa. suddenly i was the overnight dj on this radio station which was fucking mind-blowing to me I did it in the winter, which sucked because it was like mentally abusive to, you know, work from midnight to 6 a.m. and get up and it was still fucking dark and cold and then sleep all day. And it was it's that is not an easy fucking thing. But I think after three months of doing that, they fired the afternoon guy and I went from overnight straight to the afternoon slot. And now all of a sudden I was the afternoon drive guy from two to seven every day or three to seven every day, which is a very powerful slot to have. You know, it's like the morning show and your afternoon guys are the, the two most important shows on the air. So I was now the afternoon drive guy on a fucking radio station in New York and it was fucking magnificent. And I had a incredibly beautiful girlfriend i had a ridiculously cool car i had this fucking job that was the thing that i'd always wanted that i never thought i was going to achieve i was a complete fucking rock star and my best friend and his wife lived half an hour up the fucking thing and my life was completely fucking incredibly wonderfully beautiful and then one day i went to work and they told me that the station was going to flip format to country halfway through my show and that I was going to have to work out if I wanted to go to L.A. to be on their sister station or if I was going to stay in New York and basically not have a job in radio anymore. 
and oh, I didn't man. I didn't I didn't have a choice and I, I walked out of the studio I walked out of the office and I walked out into the parking lot where my girlfriend who worked at the station at the time was standing there and she was like what the fuck is going on and I told her and she just looked at me and was like okay so I guess we're moving to LA and you no know question no hesitation no hesitation you know and flash forward three months and suddenly i'm you know not even three months flash forward three weeks and i'm suddenly in los angeles and i'm on the radio doing seven to midnight in la on you know a station going up against k-rock and just completely like that's the greatest culture shock that i think i've ever felt i think that was more than africa long island or any of them like moving to this place was just completely had me on my fucking back on my heels the whole time so you know that was that was how i you know a lot of my friends who i've been friends with for a considerable amount of time refer to me as forrest gump because i just have somehow managed to forest gump myself from one fascinating amazing experience to another fascinating and amazing experience that are all you know in, if they were one if it was one story of one person's life it would be dope the fact that i've got to have had all of these experiences in one life is you know honestly it's fucking magnificent like i'm so i am so grateful for every single one of these chapters and the chapter of being on the air on on Y107 in Pasadena was fucking flawless, man. Flawless. So much, so many heightened magical moments in, in just that year and a half before that station hired a new program director. And the first thing that guy does is he fires everybody. So I got fired. And then I ended up almost immediately getting hired by a guy named Mark Goodman, which was crazy because he was one of the VJs when MTV first started. And I remember sitting in my house on Long Island watching Mark Goodman on MTV. And now all of a sudden this guy is, uh, is my boss. And I was, a, I was a DJ in quotes on this web 1.0 music destination portal um, that spent like $80 million in fucking a year and a half and eventually went out of business as every single one of those things did. But that chapter was fucking craziness. And then I left there because that went out of business and I was like, okay, what, I'm, but what, by the way, when I, so when I left Y107, I had tons of offers because I'd been, you know, my ratings were incredible, um, because my show was really good and, I got offers to go to Florida and Texas and Chicago and San Diego and I had to turn them all down because there was no way that I was leaving fucking LA. Hotel California had me by the balls, you know, I'd, I'd fucking checked out but there was no way I could leave. So I went into the internet thing and then that fell to pieces. So then at that point I started, I think at that point I, that was when I started doing construction for a friend of mine just to have money coming in. And then I started doing art department on music videos. And then one of my friends became a pretty well-known director. He did dodgeball and we were friends before that happened. So I sort of went into music oh. supervising uh, on movies for him and then didn't like that anymore. So I came out of the back end of that and, and fucked around. And my friend Doug, who owns this construction company, would routinely... I would just call him and be like, yo, man, I need to make money. And he put me on a demo crew with like me and 15 fucking Mexican dudes just 
hanging out. And every single time I'd go back to work for him, he would offer me another $20,000 to become a contractor and to pay for my contracting license and all that because I'm really good at it because it fits perfectly with somebody with Asperger's. You're just building a big fucking Lego kit to a, you know, to a fucking schedule. And, you know, what it's, I plug myself into a system perfectly but I knew I couldn't become a contractor. But in the music video thing, I worked on fucking Hey Ya from Outkast. I worked on fucking Britney Spears videos. I worked on Def Leppard videos. I worked on like all these. What? Yeah, I worked on like all these big videos that were just fucking amazing. And I was doing art department, which is what I'd kind of gone to school for, which was really rewarding because my friends who hired me were these poor bastards that had had this miserable experience of the college program that we'd done. I'd fucked off and gone and done my own version of it. And now I was making exactly the same money as them doing the job with them with the fucking English lit degree while they've got their fucking technical theater degree. And I'm like, how'd that fucking degree work out for you? So I did that. Did for you a ever bit. say, go get, did you ever say, go get me another bolt? I, I should have, I should have, I didn't, I would, uh, if I ever get to again, I'll remember that. That's a good point. Um, yeah. you count the fucking bolts. So I did that, which was great. And then, you know, the, the problem with that is that it's really sporadic work and I didn't need something that was more dependable. And my, the guy that I've worked for three music programmers uh, or, or uh, program directors. And the first one was a guy named Steve Bladder. And Steve Bladder is a, a, an atrocious manager of talent, but is a, is, was a brilliant manager of my talent because he recognized it really quickly and just basically let me hang myself, gave me all the rope I needed to. And then he left uh, Y107. And then that was when they hired the new guy who then fired me. So Steve transitioned from Y107 to becoming head of programming for a small company called Sirius XM. And I hit oh, him up. Wow. I hit him up one day. Uh, I got his email address and I hit him up and I was like, yo, man, I want to get back into fucking radio. And uh, I know you guys have a studio out here and I would love to know if I could get just a couple of swing shifts or some shit. And he was like, the, he's like, yeah, I'll send an email. He sent an email to Will Pendarvis. And I went down and interviewed with Will. And then the next day I started at Sirius XM. And then, you know, that was eight years that I was there. Man, it's like your journey just like went into hyperdrive. There's so many little little things along the way. It's interesting to note, and I want to make sure we get back to this. You did the thing in college. Was that your first real radio experience, like being behind uh, the control yeah. board and running a show? Yeah, yeah. And it was the best way to do it because there were no rules. There was no FCC compliance. You know, it was just you could do anything you wanted. It was uh, it was magic. It really was. Uh, and I, I then became the uh, technical director of the radio station, helped run it with two of my closest friends, these two uh, women, um, Rachel and Bernadette, who I'm... They still they live in L.A. now. I'm still friends with them. And we took over the radio station and built it ourselves in our own image. And it was fucking awesome. And did that for, I think, probably three years. And, you know, I thought that was it. And I was completely stoked. Like I was like, if this is the end of my, you know, if this is all that radio has for me, then great. <laughs> that was perfect. You know, little did I know that the, you know, this, the, the wiggly, crazy line that my career was going to be was going to lead me to being on the air in Los Angeles. Yeah. And then ultimately uh, Sirius XM. It's funny that you end up on Sirius as well. I think that's a brilliant medium for you, especially with where your humble beginnings start with creating this studio for your college uh, radio program. You get to kind of go to a, a place where 
there aren't really the same kind of rules as terrestrial radio. You are allowed to be more yourself when you're on air. So that experience had to be, again, very therapeutic to get back into being able to just share your experiences without having to worry about what filter you're putting on. It was. The thing that was handier for me, actually, was the fact that I could voice track an entire show and they were expecting me to spend two hours on it and I would be able to voice track an entire show in 15 minutes. The fastest I did it was 11 minutes. I had my hand on the studio door and I looked at Pendarvis and I was like, time me. And I went in and I banged out an entire seven-hour shift in 11 minutes. And I ran back out and he was like, it took 11 minutes. You can never only spend 11 minutes on your show ever again. So I would be able to do a show in you know half an hour, tops, which meant that I had now 23 and a half hours to do whatever the fuck else I wanted to do. And I was getting paid full freight for being on the air at SiriusXM. Um, and, you know, also visiting in on the Ellis show. And at that point I'd, you know, one of the things I did, I was also, well, yeah. So when I left the, when I left the radio station in LA, the uh, Y107, which was the sister station to X107, I started a band with some friends of mine and I was just drumming and we were fucking around and then we couldn't find a sick, a singer, excuse me. So I, I became the singer and then suddenly that band went from being like a joke band that we were just doing as well, not a joke band. We took it seriously, but it was sort of like a distraction band. Suddenly we were like showcasing for every fucking record label and everybody wanted to fucking sign us. And it became this huge thing that went on for like four years of like making records and demoing for capital and all these big producers and this whole fucking like this entire like people you know me being in a conference room and people actually looking at me and saying you know you don't need the rest of the band like fire all of them and when we'll build a new band around you like i got to experience this entire cliched version of like gigging all over los angeles and doing little tours in a van and being a singer in a band and that fucking whole shit show of what that experience was like and when I came out of that, I was so abused by the record labels that I just decided I, I, I wanted to make an album of my own music w w the way that I wanted to do it. So I went to a friend of mine who had just moved here, uh, my friend Leo, who was in the industrial band with me in New York. We, he moved out here uh, 2005, I think, maybe. Um, and... I went to him and I was like, hey man, like I just want to make a record and I don't want to worry about singles. I don't even worry about putting it out. I just want to stick my fingers down my throat and make something happen and see what it is. And after, you know, it took me a year, but I made a, a solo album that I sang on and performed a bunch of the instruments and I hired all my friends to do all the other stuff that I couldn't. And I learned how to mix by just mixing my own solo record for a year and after i put that out and i wasn't even putting it out i just burnt a hundred copies of it and gave it to my friends a bunch of my friends who were musicians were like hey man how much would it cost for you to make a record for me so i just started making records for my friends and through that went from having a little bit of gear to buying more and more gear and eventually got to the point where i have a pretty professional setup by the time i was you know in my late 30s and I'd done a bunch of records for a bunch of friends and then I started doing records for major labels and realized that I fucking hate that so while I was on Sirius XM at the same point I've got this other career that I'm building as this sort of music producer mixer guy and you know doing that at a major label level and then realizing that that also sucked because those people don't give a fuck about music from that end either but that was how Jason found out about me making records in my apartment. And that was how Taint Stick and Death, Death, Die became real. 
Um, so the whole time I was on Sirius XM, the great thing about that was that I didn't have to spend seven hours on a shift or five hours in a studio. I could bang it out in half an hour and then have, and then that paid my bills. And then the rest of the time I could be working on other stuff, uh, usually for free because I didn't need, to, you know, if my friends needed to do a record with me or wanted to do a record with me, they didn't have to pay me. I would just do it to have the experience of being able to continue making records and learning. So I was able to make records for free with my friends or a thousand bucks for an entire album because that was all they had and it didn't matter to me. Um, it was running around money. So I was really incredibly, once again, really lucky to find myself in a situation where, you know, I my experience on the radio paid off. But then also these other things I was allowed to do were manifesting further experiences that you know now that i'm doing this thing that i do now all of these experiences i can draw from when i'm doing my show because i've been in the room and i've made music and i've stood in amazing studios with world-class musicians and i've made records with indie people in my bedroom and put records out and had hits in quotes and you know had you know, we took fucking taint stick onto the billboard charts, you know, I mean, it was fucking ridiculous, you know, like there was so many moments out of that show. I mean, that eight years, it's been, you know, this year is the 10th year anniversary of taint stick, you know, 2009 is when we put that record out. Um, it's fucking crazy. I can't believe that. Yeah. You know, and, and that was, you know, we got on fucking suburban noise and got to fucking do stupid shit with them. And then the shows that, I mean, there was one show that we did, the Death, Death, Die show that we played in the joint at Ellis Mania when we were on that big fucking stage and I had them do the whole light show and everything for us when we first did. And I think that was the first time we did Enter Sandman. And yeah. it was fucking, it was amazing. You know, like getting to play drums in that band is one of the most rewarding musical experiences I'd ever had because I built that fucking thing. <laughs> that is me. Yeah. That is it me. really is it's the way that those records hours. would the, the way those records would come together is that those guys would show up and they would just give me riffs and then they would leave. And then the next time they heard it, I would piece all of the riffs together to make actual songs out of. And we never sat here and wrote a song ever. It was just riffs. Ellis would show up, Tully would show up, and they're both riff machines, but they did not have songs. And I'd be like, all right, give me this, junk, 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 and they'd do that. And I'd be like, all right, give me a different thing, and they'd do something else, and I'd make a bridge out of it or whatever. That band was constructed out of three of my closest friends, and then those two fucking guys, and Raw Dog, and the rehearsals were run by me. Everything was run by me. The, 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 fact that because i said to them i was like if we're gonna do this this cannot be a joke these songs can be a joke but this live performance has to be a real fucking band people have to show up and actually look at us doing these fucking stupid jerk off songs and think holy fuck if these guys were doing real songs this would be a band to reckon with and that is precisely what we became, dude. My friend, we, the sound guy who did our sound is my friend Craig, who was also in the industrial band in New York, who ended up playing in Crazy Town, and he's one of the fucking best sound men in all of Los Angeles. That was our sound guy. So, we, so wow. I, I knew that we had to have a crew that fucking was pro level, so that when people showed up, because I knew that people, you know, the, the audience for the Ellis show is not a, it's not a lot of rich people. It's a lot of working class, hardworking Alberta oil field dudes and truck drivers. And if those people are going to spend their hard-earned money on what we're doing, then we have to give them something of value in return. 
We can't just give them a bunch of jerk-off fucking songs that we've half taken half seriously. We have to give them something that is worthy of their hard-earned money because if they're going to give us 45 bucks, that's probably 45 bucks that could have been spent on a dinner for the family or movies for the kids or some other thing that we could have... And they've chosen to give us that money. Then we have to give them something back that is worth that. We cannot take it for granted, ever. And I did. I was so fucking grateful for every single one of those fucking experiences. And, and getting to play on that stage with those dudes and fucking mayhem doing party bot and all of... I mean, just, it was like, it was so fucking sick, dude. Like, when we did the fucking Roxy and... uh and I could talk about this shit in this way because nobody else in that fucking organization is going to give me a lick of fucking credit. But when we went, we were, when we were doing Taint Stock, I, we were in rehearsals and, and um, Ellis had told us that McGrath was going to be doing a show with us. So I looked at them all in rehearsal and I was like, you know what we need to do? We need to learn how to play Fly so that we can force him to do fly with us because that dude gets paid $200,000 to do fly at all of these corporate gigs and all these other fucking shows. So if we learn it and we just start it without his permission, there's no fucking way that he's not going to do it with us. So then fucking Mikey, who is, you know, Chad Reed in the band, he was like, all right, I'll go. He's like, I'll learn it. And the next day he came back and he looked at us and he just went, and played it perfectly and we were like holy fucking shit this is gonna be sick and then we did it and we fucking you know we did it as a and ellis did it perfectly he was like yeah we got a christmas present for you mark and then we started it and then the best part was he was looking at all of us and you could see on his face that he was like you motherfuckers and then he turned around and just sold the fucking thing for the entire time and that version of fucking fly then we go into the death metal bit at the end of it is fucking magnificent magnificent so you know like we got i got to fucking steer that musical project and turn a bunch of fucking dick bags ellis has never been in a band before in his life tully's been in a bunch of fucking bands but he's a nebbish bookworm who's got the sharpest fastest mind i've ever been in a room with and then the stupidity and insanity of raw dog and then <laughs> this band that sounded amazing with these records that sounded like real records that, you know, like we, we sweated over those things. You know, I, I wish that people had, when that thing fired on all of its cylinders, I wish that people could have sat and been in my apartment when we were all high as fuck coming up with lyrical ideas and song ideas and actually crafting the, the, the real one is Ninja Flying Eagles. Like that record was so fucking good because taint stick we didn't know that it was going to be something we could really do and big fucking mega boat was such a was catastrophic timeline because ellis went off to fucking sexual sex rehab and all that shit halfway through it and then when he came out he was furious that we'd made this record without him and didn't promote it and didn't do any of the things that we wanted to do and but ninja flying eagles was when everything was working at 110 percent dude all the artwork for those records that's all me i went and designed what? all dude i went and designed all of that artwork that had nothing to do with anybody it was me and ryan fucking steely i would go to his fucking house have dinner with him hang out with the kids and then the two of us would craft all of that art dude the t-shirt with the fucking every single show canceled on the back of it from the taint stick tour all my idea Every single one of it, down to having a fucking DVD, because I was like, the way that we beat the fucking Piraters 
is we have a DVD attached to every single one of our records. So people will then want to buy the album. They'll want to buy the album because the DVD isn't going to be as cool ripped on fucking YouTube. It's not going to look as cool in their fuck, as on their big fucking TVs in their houses when they're getting drunk with all the other Ellis fans or high and watching our stupidity. I'm like, every single movie, every single music record has to have a movie attached to it. And that was why that happened, which was Man. why I, I wanted to make sure that everything was of high enough quality that people could pay 45 bucks and get something that they were like, yeah, dude, this is worth every fucking penny. And all, I svengali that entire fucking project, dude. And I take nothing away from any of the other dudes. It would have been nothing without Ellis, nothing without Raw Dog, nothing without Tully. Absolutely not. And the live show would have been nothing without, I mean, you know, Chad Reed's fucking guitar playing on the, on the records and his playing live, all of that shit. Like, every single person was absolutely mandatory. And the greatest sadness for me is that Jason Ellis never realized that he was sitting with the Wu-Tang Clan of fucking radio when we were at the peak of our powers. Because that's exactly what it was, dude. We were the Wu-Tang well Clan of fucking radio. Raw Dog was our ODB. And I was fucking Inspector Deck or the RZA and Ellis was fucking Method Man and fucking Tully was, you know, fucking Raekwon the chef. And he was, because he'd never done the gig before, he didn't realize just what a pinprick moment he was sitting on when all of those minds were in the same fucking room together. And it is a great sadness and a huge disappointment that it wasn't allowed to really run the fucking... But, you know, it couldn't run that hot. It needed those personalities to be what it was. It couldn't run that hot for too long. That engine would burn out. And, you know, I mean, the guy is fucking yard sale. And he turns, you know, everything becomes a yard sale. So the band ended up, unfortunately, literally being a yard sale where we've sold all of the fucking, you know, we sold everything off for pennies on the fucking dollar. But nonetheless, amazing. Like, I, you can't fucking, you couldn't pry those eight years from my cold, dead fucking hands because there were some really incredible moments. There were some beautiful moments. You know, my disappointment at Jason is not in his behaviors because his behaviors are Jason's behaviors. My disappointment is that he, I've actually seen some, some really beautiful sides of Jason Ellis that nobody else has, I don't think. And those have disappeared like tears in the rain, as he says at the end of fucking Blade Runner. You know, like that's, that's yeah. my sadness. My sadness isn't that it ended. My sadness isn't that the story flamed out the way it did. It was supposed to. That's how it ran. But my sadness is that the reality and the truth of that thing has been lost for whatever reason needed to be lost. So that was fucking serious. And then I left there and, you know, I'd started doing the, I'd done the single vocal thing on the air. I'm oh, sorry. Do you have any questions? I, I apologize. I, I, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I gotcha. I do have a couple questions and I want to really quickly say one, one thing that's very important. I think it just, it would go against me as a person to not mention that uh, really me finding myself in podcasting and radio is all thanks to that show and really you and, and, and Josh both branching out to do podcasts led me down this exact path. We would not be sitting here if it wasn't for you. And I don't, and it's not just my journey that you guys in that encapsulated moment of the Wu Tang of Ellis, like, you guys inspired people that I'm friends with people for life now because of some radio show. I know. Um, I know. And, and, and you As are am too. I. I mean, it, As am I. I mean, it's, it's just crazy to me to think that we were all affected by something that is so magical 
And and it's funny because I think that as fans back then, and I mean truth truth be told, and not to I'm not trying to like hype colors or try to be loyal or something, but when you left Ellis, I stopped listening and I haven't went back. It was just it. Josh had left. The flavor was gone. It wasn't the same for me. Well, I think and, if I may, I think that sure. What happened with me leaving was that you know Josh's relationship in that show had always been contentious and Josh's place in that thing had always been contentious because of who Josh is and because of who Ellis was in that relationship. And I think that when he left, there was a lot of people being able to say, well, Raw Dog deserved it because Raw Dog did or didn't do this and blah, blah, blah. I think when I left, Jesus, please let me turn my Facebook messenger off. I think when I left, a lot of people looked at it and went, Oh, this is kind of actually pretty fucked. Like that dude, meaning me, might be a complete madman and a lot of, you know, the problems, blah, 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 and personality conflicts and all that. But that dude's a pretty fucking straight shooter who didn't really create problems the way that Raw Dog did, wasn't really a character that deserved to be assassinated. And I think I was kind of the, the canary in the coal mine where everybody went, oh, there's something going on behind the scenes here that isn't healthy. And I think it was the thing that broke a lot of the show for a lot of the old, true, legit Ellis fans who'd been there since, you know, Ellis Mania was fucking 20 of us at Fortune's Gym, you know? And they'd also watched a lot of people come and go from that show. A lot of people who, I mean, if you think about the list, the cast of characters that have been dismissed from that thing, I think that I was, I was the straw that broke the camel's back for a lot of people. And, you know, I, I, you know, like, you know, Tom Fine, the guy who run who ran the Sunshine Kite Company, you know, like he passed away and I went down to his memorial over the summer and there were Ellis fam there from uh, people who'd flown in from Canada and Arizona and New York and had come there to help pay tribute to this beautiful guy who they had met through this dumb fucking radio show. And it's another thing that I mean, like Ellis didn't understand how fucking special what we had built. We had all built that, dude. Absolutely. And, you know, the fans had also built it because the fans had supported and bought in from day one. And, you know, there is that, there's about, you know, there's that, there's like a three-year period there where it's absolutely fucking extraordinary, man. And... You know, it, it, I'm, I'm so gratified to hear that, you know, you were inspired to do things and, you know, other people, you know, it's one of the things that Ellis did that was really great was he got very people who hadn't experienced a lot of the things talking about why we shouldn't be fucking shitty to trans people, <laughs> you know, like why, you know, You're like right. what, what, you know, what Stern did for, for turning porn stars into three dimensional people Ellis did for homosexuals and trans people. Like it was, you know, like there was a bunch of fucking people around Canada and America that were like, Oh, wait a minute. This dude's cool with fucking faggots and trannies. I guess I should probably take a look at how I feel about faggots and trannies and change their perspective. And, you know, thought about things differently because of this stupid fucking radio show. And it was 
pristine for a little bit there. So I'm glad I'm really gratified that you, you know, that it helped it helped inspire you to to find this because that's you know that to me is why I do things is in the hopes that yeah. the, you know the butterfly effect of it will be that you know there be dandelion seeds that are cast off from your actions. I think that's one of the things that human beings inherently want to have happen it's why we're parents when we become them you know so thank you i'm glad that that's something that you found through this yeah i mean it would be uh like i said it'd be false of me not to bring that up but i want to also mention one thing because through my history with the ellis show you and i have a little bit of a like a longer history just because who i've been with for 12 years uh the the phenomenal miss sarah what was that like for you guys hearing someone play your music that you guys were taking very seriously, but obviously had funny uh, undertones with the lyrics and all of that? What was that like experiencing that in a, in a way you probably weren't expecting when you wrote these songs? Well, it, it's obviously immediately it's really flattering. And then secondly, it it proved to me what I already knew, which was in the construction of those things. I knew that what we were building was actually really good. You know, like if you took the stupid lyrics and vocals off of it and put legitimate vocals over the top of it, these songs are fucking like, you know, awesome world. And you know, those, that whole fucking run of shit that, I mean, that Ninja flying Eagles record just has a, brilliant song after brilliant song after brilliant song that is you know only amplified by the mania of ellis over the top of it so to hear somebody actually translate what we'd done into legitimate music to me was like yeah this is exactly the point that i've been trying to make all along fellas which is that what we're doing is really good it's just that we've yeah. camouflaged it with stupidity but if you reduce it from that to this thing, which she did and did it beautifully, it's like, no, these are these are sick. So it was, a you know, and it's also one of the things like there were fucking people doing drum covers of, of Death, Death, Die songs on YouTube. And you're just like, that's fucking awesome. You know, like, you're like you know, I wrote that. Holy shit. Yeah, it's the it's the you know, the it, imitation is the highest form of flattery. It really was incredibly flattering and rewarding to watch people be inspired by this goofy music to make other music based on our goofy music outstanding just to lay it i mean just to lay it down like the ninja flying eagle record just specifically you've you've mentioned it a couple times now it banger after banger on that album uh specifically like uh, the woodsman is one that comes to mind because it is so classic heavy metal like Oh, it just, it's perfect. It makes so much sense that you were, it's like Ellis, Tully, and everybody else were giving you the paint and you actually had to like put the strokes down and figure out how to make it actually happen. Yeah. And then the other thing that was fun about it was that we didn't have to fit into one genre. You know, like that's the thing about the Taint Stick record. It's, it's us sort of like discovering it where we just made goofy metal songs and then we got to branch out. And, you know, that was the thing for me that was really cool about, even though I'm not entirely rewarded by it as a body of work in quotes the cool thing about the 
big fucking mega boat record was that we that was like guest stars you know we had we had like legit we had fucking what's his name from the used on that like mccracken's on that fucking thing Bert you know McCracken, like, yeah so there you know we had and and my you know uh Beddingfield, Daniel Beddingfield's on that record. And we had, you know, like Everlast. real musicians, Everlast, you know, a fucking, we had fucking Rob from Machine Head play on Ellis's fucking song for crying out loud, you know? So it was, that to me was that was the sort of high watermark of that thing. And, you know, just so everyone knows there was a record after that, but you know, the thing for the, for me with the record after it, I went to them and, and I said, listen, I can't just make another fucking Ninja Flying Eagles. I can't just make another fucking big fucking mega boat. I was like, what I would like to do is I would like to make an old time. I want the whole album to be a concept record from start to finish. And each and we write, we get the fans to write the storyline with us on the air. And then we go away and then we will we'll come and keep visiting and bringing new chapters from that story by playing the songs on the radio. But we're going to do like interstitial radio play bits and we're going to make this whole thing be like an hour long audio movie that you will put in and the songs will be interwined and intertwined amongst this narrative that the fans all came up with. And Ellis was like, yeah, I don't want to fucking do that. And I was like, okay. So then, you know, he and Katie showed up and they did some riffing one night and Ellis Tully had given me some riffs. And it was, you know, it was one of the, it was one of the markers that I knew that I didn't want to do it anymore was I was like, we're starting to repeat ourselves and I'm not somebody who repeats himself. So I, you know, if I'm not going to be able to make this record into something that's exciting for me and it is an obvious uh, evolution from our previous fucking shit, then I don't want to do this. And that was the first, the first moment where I was like, yeah, this is, I think this has run its course for me. The pain had started to crack for you. Yeah, there was, you know, there had been other, there had been other issues prior. I mean, those eight years were not, um, they, you know, seven years, they were not trouble free. Um, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of abuse, honestly. Um, but it was all forgiven because, you know, the thing is that Ellis is brilliant. And when you're brilliant, you're sometimes you're troubled and he's had a really difficult life and he's had a very painful upbringing and he's had traumas that most of us haven't had to deal with. Um, unfortunately his, his, solution to it is to take it out on everyone around him which is what he was shown is a solution that it was shown to be the solution that other people had solved their crises with and i'm not somebody who likes to be in that atmosphere and i forgave it for long enough until raw dog was fucking summarily executed and then i was like oh. yeah i don't i don't need to be around this anymore this is not this is literally not fun anymore <laughs> And, you know, once Raw Dog left, I was over it. And that was the, that was the beginning of the, that was the beginning of the end for me. Um, so there was supposed to be another record after, and it was going to be, if we'd been allowed to make the record I wanted to make, I think it would have been fucking awesome because it would have been a culmination of all other things, but fucking it didn't get to happen. an audio drama soundtrack that's amazing. Oh, it was going to be sick. It was going to be like a fucking radio play and we were going to have an actual storyline and we we're going to draft, you know, actors and other people that came by the studio. We were going to draft them in and have this entire narrative going and then it would be it would be like a rock opera slash old-time radio show with sound effects and it would have been fucking epic. 
but you know it was too much like hard work and you know there was something else that needed to be done and it wasn't that so man uh, that's uh it's very unfortunate now during your time in your eight years with ellis you did start podcasting i did uh now you didn't i don't i, I, I don't let me misspeak here you first started doing guest spots on other podcasts before you started your own right yeah, I was on with, uh, I used to go and, you know, I loved the guys on the Mad Scientist Party Hour. So I would go, because it was a walk from my house, and I would just go and sit with Jeff and and Kev and just get so fucking stoned and just hang out and be goofy. And I was like, this is fucking, you know, this is kind of, this is how I can do my own radio show, <laughs> you know? And the limitation will be that I can't play copywritten music without running into difficulties, but I'm going to do it anyway. So I I did, and... You know, I did it for a few years, and then unfortunately, it became the opposite of what I wanted to be, which it just actually became a diary for my nervous breakdowns and mental collapse. And I didn't really, you know, one of the things that had become tiring for me in the Ellis world and in the fucking Stern world and in the Opie and Anthony world is that it 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 started to turn into share porn, where it was like how much how much truth can you tell, but not because you authentically want to tell the truth, but just because you want your truth to be gnarlier than everyone else's truth. And I, you know, like I don't need to get into a pissing match over authenticity with anybody. So one of the things that I started to feel about my own podcast was that it was turning into share porn and I didn't really want to play into that cliche as it revealed itself. Okay, so you were like, I gotta take this off the off the air. That now we're speaking about man versus radio, obviously. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now that was. Let me tell you, I will say, episodes of that are amazing. Many episodes of that. I think that was a very Thank beautiful you. show, and uh, I want to say I think it was very therapeutic for you, uh, just being an outside listener, hearing you uh, work through all the frustrations of the Ellis Show and your history there after the fact. Um, it was to a certain degree, but the problem for me is that I still have never told the truth. Nobody knows what actually happened other than me, and I've had to sit and listen and read on Reddit and in messages and all that. I've had to read and listen to Ellis's version and Tully's version. You know, they just fucking, somebody hit me up and sent me the last Ellistronics that they did where they talked about it, and they're still not telling the fucking truth. And it's a real bummer to me that they're not telling the truth. And I couldn't tell the truth because I was in the midst of a lawsuit. And then once the lawsuit was became something that couldn't happen, I had no more interest in telling the truth of what happened. I know it's what It's not happened. worth it for you. It's not worth it for me because the thing is that ultimately I've won because I got to be me. <laughs> And I didn't have to deal with being somebody else that I didn't, you know, like somebody else who's much sadder than I am and someone else who is much less rewarded than I am. Um, because I, f I feel that one of the things that stops certain people from really being able to, you know, I'm not a happy person, but I'm a grateful person. And I think that gratitude can lead to its own version of happiness. And that, you know, some of the people that I was surrounded with in that place are not grateful for anything. A lot of shit is taken for granted. There's a level of um, 
What's the word I'm looking for? Yeah, exactly. There's a level of entitlement where, you know, we're not entitled to anything. And it's annoying when you deal with people that think that they are. And, you know, that's that's epidemic, especially in at places where creative people gather and are yeah. then, you know, uh, encouraged to be that way because they make more money, blah, 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 blah. So it just, you know, it got to the point where it had just run its course and the man versus radio thing had run its course and it had turned into an obligation, which I never wanted it to be. And um, the big bummer for me is, the, is I don't know, I, I put up and then pulled down this fucking Skylar Gray episode, which nobody's heard. And then I trashed it instead of even saving it, which I can't believe I did because I told the Skylar Gray story and that, that I listened back to it and it was flawless because I got to tell the story of Skylar or Holly and myself leading into her becoming Skylar and that whole thing happening. And I got to play music, but the music that I was playing was the music that we had created and our friends had created during the time that that story was actually playing out which Whoa. I don't know if anyone else has ever been able to do because it was songs that we were writing about each other and songs that and it was just, and it was fucking, <laughs> it was so fucking good. It was so good. It was, it might've been the best fucking episode that, you know, I'd done and nobody's heard it. And I, and I scrapped it. I don't know why I deleted it. I have an archive of all of them and I don't know why I didn't just slide it into that archive, but it was really, really good. It was a, it was a, and, you know, and it ends with fucking love the way you lie you know i mean it ends oh. with it ends with one of the greatest fucking pop songs of all time being written about me and then me being able to play that as the culminating fucking song in a story about me and my girlfriend so the Man. whole art leads to that rihanna and eminem you know what i'm saying like it was so good it was so good so you know there i i don't I'm so glad that I did it, and I think that it's something that, well, you know, I just did one for Christmas. I have to put up the other half of the 50. I want to put up the, the audio from my birthday party um, because there are there are still stories to tell. I just I just need to really want to sit down, and I think the next thing for me is is when, you know, this next thing starts to really take off. I'll need to be able to do something like that. And I'll probably do it with a friend and I'll find other ways to make it exciting for myself. But I think I did it for like five years. Yeah. You know, so that's I put where my, I'm at right now. I put my time in on it. You know? And those weren't short episodes to say. No, the they least, were like man. three hours a piece. I mean, it started as so, an hour and then very quickly it became a three hour extra extravaganza. Yeah, I remember one. I don't. I don't remember specifically what the episode was, but I do know that one Thanksgiving I spent with like cooking dinner for my dad's side of the family, listening to your Man vs. Radio that specific week when it had dropped in that time frame, and he was just like blown away. And I was like, "Yeah, it's really good, right?" Like, oh, well, thanks. This is pod. This is podcasting, Dad. Check it out. Like, it's good. <laughs> right. Uh, but uh, you know, I want to say you said uh, you, the next thing starting to pick up. And, and I think it's important that we mention the sessions and the work you've been doing. I feel like I have questions, but I also feel like there's a landmine of impossible answers. And what I mean by that is the sessions, and I'll let you break it down better than I'm probably going to, because I'll paraphrase here 
is you breaking down tr- literally individual track by track recordings of amazing songs across the board, whether it's uh, Queen or Pantera or um, Flock of Seagulls, like anybody. You you did you've done them all. Phil Collins. It, it doesn't matter. Um, how did you learn to do that, or is there something like? Do you have access to something that no one on the, else on the world does? Or I, I feel like this is a very unique thing you have. Uh, I have access to something that nobody else in the world has. Sweet, and, and that's you know, I I over the starting probably about ten years ago, I had begun to acquire these things, not through any nefarious methodology they just they're all of the you know so many of the producers in LA have these things and because they've been out there um and we sort of handed them around to each other and I'd built a pretty substantial archive of them I have an even bigger even more substantial archive in this at this time and it you know it started it was one night I was here with Jason and we got really high and it was one of the a really one of the fucking beautiful nights man and we got really high and we were sitting here and I started playing him shit and he was like is there any way because he's you know doesn't know a lot of things he was like is there any way to get these things out of your computer and play them on the radio and I was like yeah dude <laughs> it's just a pro Tools session so that was when it started to be come and do the vocals on the air thing with Ellis. And I did it and it was a huge success. And he resented the fact that it was a huge success. I think he resented even more the fact that he knew that he was going to need me to keep doing it. Um, you know, I think one of, one of the big fuck you moments was he, that they did this. They would do these like every year for Christmas. They would do an auction where, you know, people could bid on events or bid on experiences. And one of them was to come and spend the day with Ellis on the Ellis show. And the dude that won it said that it was mandatory that I came in and did my segment. Um, that was the only oh. way he wanted to do it. So, so that happened. So uh, imagine how that went over with certain members of the, of the team so uh it did but not go over well is didn't what go over saying. well didn't go over well <laughs> so uh i did it but it didn't go over well um so one of the things that i had done is i had actually tried and gone in and tried to do an entire song with jason and he his adhd just didn't allow for it which is fine you know he he's he didn't want something that stretched for half an hour to 20 minutes of it he wanted or 20 minutes to half an hour he wanted to just bang through vocals so when i left sirius I reached out to a friend of mine who was on a morning show here on a radio station that posited itself as the music station. And I was like, hey, man, I have this segment that I've been doing. And I think that Mark, who's Mark Thompson of Mark and Brian, which is a very, very famous, influential pairing uh, on the radio here in California. Um, I was like, I think he will enjoy this. And I went in sight unseen and I did... um, heard it through the grapevine because I said, what are, what are his favorite bands? And he said, Marvin Gaye. And I said, cool, I got exactly what I need. And I went in and I did this. And then he had me back every two weeks. And then I got hired there and I started doing it uh, on the <clears throat> on the air there, uh, doing the entire songs uh, in the morning show and doing the afternoon drive. And then one, I was with... Um, <clears throat> An ex, my last girlfriend and I were musicians and we worked on a record together. And at the conclusion of all of the days of us working together, we I would sit and just play her things from these master recordings. And 
One day she said, you know, it's a real bummer to me that we can't invite our friends here to sit and listen to what you do because they would fucking lose their minds. And I was like, do you really think anyone would give a shit? And she said, yeah. And that was how the live show was hatched. And what I did was I just booked a space. I had the radio station pay for it. And I guest listed, gave away tickets to all of the listeners. I put 150 people in the room and I was like, I have no idea what this is going to be like. And, you know, it's entirely improv. They don't script it. There's nothing pre-ordained about any of it. Um, all I have is a white index card that just has the names of the players and some cool trivia, but everything else is made up on the spot. And I did it and it was the the single most profound thing that I had done in with music because it was everything I'd ever wanted to do in one moment. And on top of that, every experience that I had had prior was pulled from in order to make this thing as good as it could be. Um, so it was everything. And from that, it was, a you know, I, I started doing it once a month and building it and building it. And now, you know, the shows sell out in under a minute and I am doing it this weekend. I'm going to San Francisco to do, I'm doing a 200 person venue that sold out in San Francisco and, you know, a TV show is being pitched to get me to move to that level. And, you know, it's, it's sort of apples flying me up to San Fran to do it for them. And there's people down here that I'm doing it for. Uh, there's, I've actually had to sign fucking NDAs for people that I can't even talk about shows that people want me to do for them. So the whole thing Damn. has like taken on a life of its own and has now become what I do. And it's fucking awesome. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's an experience that I, I, I wish that everybody would be able to experience what it's like to do the thing that you know you were supposed to be doing with your life and you getting paid for the it. job you wanted. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's the thing, right? As I said earlier, like every, even radio, you know, every ra every job that I went to in the music industry was not about the music. So I had to create one that was just about music. You know, like I had, I had no choice. It, you know, it's like fucking, what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention or whatever it is. You know, and I just had to invent something. Like I am the only person in the world who does this show. That's a, that is a, a I mean, I, I can't even tell you how blessed you have to be in 2019 to be able to say those words. Be unique and do something original that no one else can take from you. No, I mean, you could, I could give someone else the master sessions to Bohemian Rhapsody and they're not going to do the show the way I do it. I would like to see what somebody else would do with this. It would be really interesting. But I know that there's Just, nobody else who's had all of the experiences in life that I have had leading up to this moment. Man, I think it's uh, awesome. The sessions, you know, you break down it track by track. You really, like you said, you make it 100% about the music. It's the most important element. Uh, we are, I'm sure you'll be cool with this, but we are going to link the listeners to your SoundCloud with a lot of the different KLOS Please. sessions yeah, yeah. that you've they're, had. They're all up there. Yeah. Um, I was just uh, going through and just like re-listening to some of my favorite ones. And I was I, the Pantera, I'm broken one, man. Can I just so say like... So good. Oh, that bass line that Rex does Sick. during the solo. Sick. And you that's, just, so that's, you're breaking it. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, you were breaking it down, and I'm just sitting there giggling because I'm like, this is like one of my favorite bands, and I've never actually heard it this clear. This is amazing. Like, this is what music should do. It should light you up when you hear it. I think that's the sessions allow people to hear music differently because they're hearing parts of it that they never, you know, they never get to hear you. These are, 
I well, mean, it's, it's, it's even more detailed than that, man. It's subtler. It's that they don't even know that that's what they're not hearing. Yes. Because they just hear a song. They don't realize, you know, that's why I'm doing it is I'm showing, you know, like one of, so I did Pantera live. So what I do when I do it live is that I will always, the headliner is going to be somebody that I know that everybody's going to want to see. But then the opener is somebody I want people to understand. And I tell everyone, I'm like, I don't expect you to like these bands at the end of this. But what I want from you and expect from you is that you will respect them. So I don't give a fuck that you don't like Pantera. But if you don't respect Pantera, it's because you're not listening. And part of the way to get people to respect it is to show them in Pantera that every single person in that band is a motherfucker. That that guitar track is a single take from start to finish. That that the drum track is a single take from start to finish. And then to get it even more subtle and nuanced, where you have to understand that it's two brothers and that the love that they have for each other is exhibited in the fact that when, you know, Megadeth starts, he reaches out to Dimebag and says, Hey, I want you to play guitar in my band. It's called Megadeth. And he said, fucking Dimebag says, cool i'm bringing Vinny with me to play drums and he's like nah, i already got a drummer and Vinny says well then i don't want to play in your band and then you tell them that that guy then has to is then executed on stage at a gig while his brother looks on and suddenly you oh. see people in the crowd begin to recontextualize the music that they're hearing because the interpersonal relationships are so vital the stories are so vital. The music is just the tip of the iceberg. The stories are so much more magnificent than the music is. And then you get to hear Phil and you get to tell them to try to imagine singing like this. Which you can't. Which you can't do. And, you, and then you're like, and by the way, this isn't just like he did this and then he never did it again. He did this album and then albums after it and albums after it. And he sang this way live every fucking night for years. This is his singing voice. And you watch people's fucking shit start to recalibrate. And they're, they, they begin to understand, honestly, and it's not arrogance, it's just fact. They begin to understand how little they know. And, oh, absolutely. You know, then you get to get then you get people to re-engage or to engage entirely. You know, like some guy sent me a message today. He was like, dude, I've never listened to Fleetwood Mac ever. And now I've listened to nothing but Fleetwood Mac for 10 days. He's like, I can't stop listening to rumors. He's like, I can't believe I never experienced this album before. One of the greatest albums of all time. Of all time with one of the most ridiculous stories attached to it. Like, so, mm -hmm. you know, like that's the thing is that to me, it's not just, you know, the music isn't, is as, the story is as important as the music and you have to tell people these stories. They have, because that's the way that you put value back into something that has been devalued so badly that people don't, they don't understand why they should at least be paying 10 bucks a month for Spotify. Yeah, just. I mean, and that's not even going to give as much money to no, the people that's that are nothing. putting work in as That's as fucking possible. garbage. But it's uh, at least more than having the, the fucking audacity to sit there and listen to an album that has commercials now running in it. Because you don't want to pay 10 bucks a fucking month. Like, I sit there and, I, and I'll say, how many people here have Spotify? And, you know, 180 people in the crowd will put their hands up. And I'll say, how much? How many people are paying for it? And 20 people will still their hand up. And I will look at the crowd and say, the rest of you are a bunch of assholes. <laughs> how can you sit here and tell me that you're a music fan? 
How can you sit here and tell me that you care about music, which is why you show up to these shows every month? You don't. Go and fucking no, pay a, for it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... I feel... I feel like people don't value music the same because it's... And you said this earlier in the show, and it's very important to come back to. The arts are not valued the same in this country. It's different. And I think in 2019, music is like a byproduct of a byproduct. We expect that we can listen to whatever music whenever we want, however we want, because streaming services have allowed people that opportunity and the access to do so. Uh, but I do have a side question within the sessions. You were talking about how important the stories are that you're telling while you're putting these sessions together. What are you going to do now that there is a really deep misrepresentation of the story of Queen happening all over Hollywood? Uh, I correct it. <laughs> I'm so doing, you're going like, to do it this weekend. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I correct it. That's I tell amazing. People, I tell people everything. I tell people why the movie is garbage, and I tell people why the movie is is disrespectful to its own story, and then I tell them the real story of it, and then their fucking minds are blown because the real story is so much better. I feel like, okay, first of all, I want to mention I still haven't seen Bohemian Rhapsody, just to set the record straight. Uh, B, I do know that there's like 36 to 38 inaccuracies to the story, and that alone made me go, I'm not interested. Like if you can't get it right and there's maybe like two or three things you fudged, I don't really have interest. Well, you know, like the thing is that biopics naturally have to be fucked with, right? And I get that. And I could deal with all of the fuckeries and all of the bullshits. But the thing that I can't forgive is that he didn't tell the band that he had AIDS before Live Aid. Didn't happen. Didn't happen. It's like so, four um, years later, five years later? Yeah. And the fact that, you know, that, that the, the fact that that happened is unforgivable, man. <laughs> it changes everything. It recalibrates and recontextualizes the entire story. Well, and it makes the story that they tell, they may, it makes Live Aid seem almost um, more uh, potent than, I mean, it was a potent moment in music history, Live Aid, but... Uh, well, it makes it, it makes it more poignant, but it, it isn't. Because the thing is that actually their Live Aid performance was already epically poignant because they really were a sort of also, almost ran at that point. Their career had peaked in everyone's minds and they had just become a thing that was running in the background where you're like, oh, Queen's got a new song and blah, blah, blah. They, they, when they did that live show, that Live Aid show, Elton John went backstage afterwards and said, you just headlined Live Aid. And they played in the middle of the day. There's no lights. It's not dark. They're not one of the fucking big bands at the end of the day. They're just queen in the middle of the fucking day. And they came, that, sh that performance came to, came to represent everything about Live Aid was represented in those 20 minutes that that band was on stage. And it then immediately reestablished them as the greatest rock band in the history of music. It's that simple. Bingo. So that's really what happened with that Live Aid performance. So you don't need to add the additional bullshit of him telling the band that he had AIDS before he did it. It's unnecessary. Hollywood it's, drama that they didn't need to sprinkle. They didn't need to do it. And all of the rest of them I can forgive. All of the other fuckery I can look at and be like, I get it. I know why you did it. It's totally fucking fine. But that one, that one's unforgivable, man. 
Yeah, that's well, unforgettable. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you're going around writing the wrong of an Oscar-winning movie. Oh, you have to. Um, it's mandatory. Which is shocking that it actually. I, I, we could go on days and days about that, but with the sessions, you say. I mean, you have so many things planned, so many things. Uh, you can't talk about, but are there things coming up? And, and actually, I do have a, a sub-question, because with the sessions, you also landed a spot doing certain sessions for Guitar Center? Yeah. Is yeah, that, that was interesting. Is that something you chose to do? Did they search you out? Yeah. So uh, there's a, a woman named Shelly out here who's been coming to the session since day one, and then she somehow became she found herself uh the sort of head of new media promotions for the guitar center chain and they had this brand new you know they've taken the their flagship store on sunset sorry and have they put 10 million bucks into it and it's beautiful so they did this week-long kickoff thing and she came to me and was like what could we do so we went to them and basically we monday through friday we each day was a decade, so 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and each day I did a band from that era. So 60s was Hendrix, 70s was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, 80s was Thriller, Michael Jackson, because it was also Halloween, 90s was... Um, who the fuck did I Nirvana? Do? Yeah, 90s, exactly. 90s was Nirvana, and 2000s was Tool. Uh, but the interesting thing about that was that, you know, it's a corporate gig. It was at two o'clock in the middle of the fucking day. And I was, you know, I knew that I wouldn't be able to swear because I swear a lot. And I did the show on Monday and she came up to me afterwards and was like, you need to start swearing. And what's really amazing to me is that what I'm doing is so, is so and it's it's hard to talk about it without it seeming arrogant but it's the only way it's so important what i'm doing that people are willing to forgive me and i was now saying a million fucks in the middle of guitar center at two o'clock in the afternoon with the whole room lined with guitar center bigwigs who had flown in because this was the week-long celebration of their 10 million dollar investment and they were laughing their asses off and crying and high-fiving me and all of that shit and didn't give a fuck about the fact that it was as blue as anything that Richard Pryor has ever fucking said. And they don't care because it's the delivery device for this magic. And the magic is really what everyone's invested in at this point. And I get to do it authentically as myself i'm doing it on i did it at a lutheran fucking college campus and they let me fucking swear like a trooper and there was an eight-year-old girl in the front row and i'd sent my friend out before the show because i didn't have parental advisory stickers on my posters or on my flyers and i i i've had to start doing it because i know that people hear it on the radio and don't realize that the live version is nothing like that and you know i sent him out and i was like hey man could you please warn these people that this is going to fucking offend their kid. And he came back and was like, you should go talk to them. And I went out and they were like, yeah, no, we don't care. We've been to three of them. She's a huge Beatles fan and we want her to see this. And I fucking effed and blinded my way all through the whole thing and said a couple of really off color jokes. And they looked at her and I was like, you don't laugh at that. And you never say those words to anybody ever. And like, per- <laughs> like parented her from the fucking thing. So her parents were laughing her asses off. And so it was an oh, eight year great. old girl in the front row. You know, I did a fucking, I did a, Led Zeppelin one and I said the word cunt 
probably five times because in England it's different than here. And then I, there was a woman there and I went up to her afterwards and I was like, I'm so sorry that I used that word so many times. You're here with your child. And she was like, dude, I'll get in the car and for five minutes we'll talk about why he can't say the word cunt. And then we'll spend an hour talking about how cool Led Zeppelin is. I, you can't take that experience away from me. The five minutes that, of, of why my kid say, can't say cunt is nothing in relation to the joy that I get from fucking sitting and talking with my fucking 10-year-old about how cool Led Zeppelin is. So that's You're what like, I'm doing, man. Like, that's the level of, of this experience that I'm, that I'm sharing in with people is that I get to genuinely, simply fucking be myself unapologetically in all ways, and people are making the worst mistake that they can which is to just look at me and go keep going man because <laughs> you know give You're doing fine give him a fucking inch you'll you know you'll take a rope like you know it's like I, I i'm gonna think i'm a cowboy so it it's been really it's an amazing place to find myself at, at at 50 years old it has it has caused an immense amount of peace in my life it has caused a an un you know i've, I've got to I've got to forgive myself a lot of things because I'm genuinely doing what I know I'm supposed to be doing. And I'm being told, you know, people are saying incredible things to me about how what I'm doing is changing their lives. <laughs> like I had a guy hit me up who was in Canada and his buddy from down here had sent him the SoundCloud of the 20 minute segment and he hadn't spoken to his dad for like they'd been estranged for like 25 years so he sent his dad like his dad was like a huge i don't know uh fleetwood mac fan so he sent his dad just on a whim of the fleetwood mac one and through that they had started to talk and share these things with each other and now his dad had two weeks left to live and the guy was flying from canada to orange county to spend his the last two weeks with his dad's alive on the planet because they had started to talk to each other through these things that I'd been doing and that Whoa. he couldn't believe that he was being given the gift of being able to make amends to his father and with his father through this experience through these musical 20-minute segments. And at that point, I was like, I don't know what else, you know, like I don't know Look, what I'm doing now has taken on a life that I could never have anticipated. I did not think that breaking down a Fleetwood Mac song would cause a father and son to be able to bury the hatchet that was 20 years long so that he would then be able to spend the last two weeks of his father's life with him forgiving. <laughs> like, this is the healing power of music, everybody it's got to be absolutely humbling for you, you know, because to take it back in your story when you're with your ex-girlfriend at the time talking about you should do this for our friends in like a public space or whatever, your vision for it was just like, I really want people to really hear these songs and appreciate them how I do. And now it's beyond that because you're inspiring people. You're allowing young kids to truly find the reasons music is so important. And you know, I feel like more people in the world need to have that mentality that you have, that music has to come first, that you have to highlight the beauties of creation when people are making music because uh, it encapsulates so perfectly what that person was maybe feeling or being a part of at the time. 
Um, but those moments will never come back. They, those, they, that's why they're recorded moments, you know? So you get to, and to, to touch on this a little bit, I think it was maybe on the Pantera one or one of the ones you had done recently, or not necessarily recently, but one of the ones you had done in your catalog, you could hear in between a guitar lick and a solo, a chair squeak. Yeah. And I'm like, no one even knows those kind of moments exist no. because you you wouldn't hear it. It's covered it. up by all the other noise, you know? Yeah, so when I do it live, like, I call those the time machine moments because if you close your eyes and you imagine sitting in the control room of that studio while that was being recorded, that's what was happening in the room in front of you. So <sighs> we are being transported back to that moment because we're hearing the sound that would have come through the speakers. If the people in the control room had closed their eyes, we are now sharing in precisely exactly the moment that they were sharing in, where they would be sitting and their buddy would be playing a really cool guitar lead in the room and then would turn the chair and it would squeak. And that's the magic, dude. Like, it is a time machine. <laughs> so... You know, like when you get to do that for people and you get to show people the the secrets that these songs are hiding because you can't hear all these little bits and the, the you know, like I can I can teach people like how the Doppler effect when the lead vocalist is singing and you can hear his headphone bleed and then the headphone bleed actually changes. It's because they're turning their head because they're getting a glass of water or looking at something. So if you close your eyes, you can actually see, I don't know, you could see Freddie Mercury's head move because he's listening or changing his focus or whatever, or it's somebody coughing or, you know, like I did the Doobie Brothers and right before each of the big harmonies, one of them gives them the guide note and you can hear them go, and then they come in and they're like, bah, bah, bah. and you're like, yeah, you, you, that's the guy sitting there looking at all of them in the eye and being like D sharp and knowing that, but when it's in the song, you have no idea. And then when you put it in the song, you don't hear it. It that those, that's what I'm saying. Like all of the stories are hidden inside the music, literally and figuratively. So to be able like, to translate that and show people that these songs are three dimensional objects is quite it's quite beautiful so i feel like you have uh first of all a very beautiful journey to to be able to travel all through your life to have all these different experiences to be able to soak up these um beautiful poignant life literally life-changing moments moments that aren't just memorable because you lived them they're memorable because people who didn't live them still talk about them your moments in musical history um, I want to mention too briefly, I don't think we really talked about it, but you did music production for several different bands. Uh, did you ever get any notice or accolade, accolades as it were for doing music production before you moved into radio? Um, the, there's a couple the, the, the one that really warmed my heart the most was uh so there's a record by paul simon called graceland and in that there's a song called diamonds on the soles of her shoes that features um an african organization called uh lady smith black mambazo 
and uh, it's an a cappella group. And when the Mowgli's Records was released, we were up for a Grammy, and we got, uh, you know, like you get nominated for the nomination. So we got nominated for the nomination, and we didn't get it, but we did get a letter from the, and I loved that Graceland record. It was a fucking huge record, and it was a, one, of, one of the ones that I absorbed nonstop when it came out. And we got a, a note sent to us from the members of Ladysmith Black Mombazo saying that they were saddened to hear that we didn't get the nomination because they thought that we had made the album of the year. Wow. And I was like, you know what? Like, I don't need, I don't need anything else. Like, I don't need to win a fucking Grammy. Like, that would have been nice. But what's really nice is that through whatever sorcery my life has manifest, I can go back to the kid sitting on the school bus listening to Diamonds on the Soles of His Shoes, on her shoes, on his fucking worn down tape and his Walkman and look at him and be like, hey, by the way, that group that's singing the backup on that in like 20 years time, 30 years time, they're going to tell you that you've made the album of the year. Like done. Like, like I don't, you know what I'm saying? Like, all right, cool. So I'm, I'm actually okay. Like, Despite myself and my madness and all the things that I can't stand about myself and judge horribly about myself and, and, you know, used to hate about myself, I've actually still somehow managed to create a life where I can be rewarded at that level that, that ultimately means that I'm not as bad a person as I think that I am, <laughs> you know? And like, I, think, I think karma does a good job of giving you hope, too, because... You've faced adversity. You've been in situations that maybe some other people would struggle with, and you've always found a way to come out on top and swimming. And uh, you know your perseverance is something that's strong to note as well. Uh, so, what's next for you? I mean, you're obviously doing the sh the sessions. You have plans for that and things you can't talk about. But what does the future hold for Christian James Hand? I don't know, man. I don't know. The, uh, you know. This TV show is being pitched and the show is growing and you know, every time I do it, more and more people are, are, are brought to it. And the more I do it, the more, um, the more obvious it becomes that this is what I'm supposed to be doing now. Uh, I, I, you know, I've had to Jesus take the wheel the whole thing because all I can do is continue to try and be the best person that I can be and to be as good a person as I can be in the hopes that that will allow me to make smart decisions and have great people brought into my life that are going to help me to move this thing further and further towards whatever the manifest, excuse me, whatever the manifest destiny of it ends up being. Um, so the future is wide open in the you know the, the words of a great poet um so I, I i i i would hope that the tv show gets picked up not because i want to do a tv show but i know that if i get the tv show it will allow me to then be able to legally do the podcast which is the future of the show for me that is the thing that i really want to do um there you go so you know, I will I will have a TV show if it will allow me to do all the other things that I want to do. And, you know, the, the, I've only just scratched the surface of what I want to do with this thing. I haven't been able to sit with, you know, members of the band. I've done it, I did it with STP, which was beautiful, but I haven't done, you know, like the the live version with members of the band or, 
you know, the, I haven't been able to do a fucking uh, a Phil Collins song. You know, like that's one of the ones, a Genesis song. Like to to really be able to now hand pick the things literally and figuratively uh, that I want to do. I want to get to that point where I can just have access to whatever I want. Where I'm like, hey, this week I want to do an ELO song, and suddenly we reach out and an ELO master shows up. Um, so that that's the future that I hope is coming. And that um, I will be able to use that. You know, I don't. I've never wanted fame. And I've always, I've always known that I would have to make peace with fame if fame would lead to power. Because I want to be powerful, and I don't want to be powerful to use that in any sort of malignant way. Like I want to be powerful so that I can be. I can be uh, benevolent with that and use that power to help people to understand themselves and art and music and how important mental health is to artists and to, you know, just affect change, I think. So this is all like hopefully steps on the way to me getting to a place where I can gather enough power and supportive people around me that I can, I can actually affect the change that I wish to affect. Well, I see that this is something that is coming for you, my friend. You've put the work in. This is something that is evident that you gush passion over. Um, It's something that you also find peace in, and I think that's a beautiful thing. I believe that... uh, your legacy is a little self-evident when you look at the, your body of work and your ability to be in the moment. And, you know, at the very beginning of the show, I called you a musical renaissance man. I didn't say that just as some kitschy phrase. I knew your journey was all over the place. I mean, and to think, I mean, you touched on earlier, and we could, if you choose to, go back to it, but I feel like we're, we're nearing the end here. We didn't even touch on your journeys going and traveling to different cities and experiencing being life on the road and 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 touring for years and years of time. So you have done it all and you've worked hard and I think that your hard work has paid off and uh, it's been nothing but an honor for me to be able to sit down and chat with you about your life and your journey. Uh, so before we go, I always do ask my guest, is there anything we didn't cover in your journey that you feel like is important to talk about or bring up? Um, that's a good one. Um, yeah, ma'am, I think that the, like, there's a lot of, um, people struggling and, that uh, you know, life is in itself a lot of fucking work. And, you know, some of us don't get out of it alive. You know, Lisa, who sang the hook on Put Your Balls on It took her own life a few, two years ago. Um, yeah. And, you know, I've, I've had uh, a number of my friends and also a number of, you know, Keith Flint from The Prodigy took his life over the weekend. Um, and people are struggling a lot. And there are things that you can do now to help yourself in that struggle and if you're a creative person of you know you there is additional pressure and i do think that being a creative person is built around some kind of structural weakness or not structural weakness weakness is the wrong word a structural deficit in your brain i think that being creative is a miswiring it's why you know being 
manic depressive or bipolar or you know any of the fucking big five is you know there's creative outlets are usually the the methodology by which people choose to calm that fucking savage beast it's really important to take care of yourself it's yes, really it important to eat correctly and it's really important to exercise and it's really important not to drink it's so incredibly important not to drink it's so important not to drink it's the thing that you learn as you do all these sessions all of these tragedies that play out so many of them end because the person was drinking and alcohol is really bad for you and it's and especially if you're creative because it's a depressant and if you're drinking and you're a depressive person then you're going to make it so much harder to get yourself out of that depression and you're going to make it so much harder on yourself and you know it's been a fucking brutal struggle. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine last night and like all of the things that I have done and one day I will, I will come, I will it'll either be a book or it'll be some sort of thing where I will, I will catalog all of the things that I have done in an attempt to, to find peace with my own madness. And all of those things were done simply to try and stop myself from killing myself. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's just the truth. All of those things that I searched through were an attempt to try to calm the fucking beast inside me that was ultimately going to kill me if I didn't. And I'm hoping that I've succeeded. Um, but unless you are actively involved in that and you are willing to really do hard work, then you are dooming yourself to a very, very sad life. And it doesn't have to be that way. Um, so, no, I, you know, my my hope would be in that everything that I'm doing would ultimately lead people to be able to be grateful for their own lives and accepting of the things that they want and are unwilling to go after from fear. You know, like I've been relatively fearless in my life, which is hard to do when you're a person with Asperger's because Asperger's is built around an entire matrix of fear. Um, so it's hard to be fearless in society. It's hard to go after what you really want to go after. You know, like my, my relationship with my father is so wonderful now because he's actually gets to look at me and say, you were right. All the times that I told you to do the other thing, you did the other thing to the other thing and look where you are now. My dad is a huge fan of what I'm doing, you know, so it, it, it's, it's really easy to say things. It's just, it's much more difficult to do things. And living a life that is fully yours should be our number one priority. And that should be what we teach children and what, what, what we teach ourselves and our loved ones and the people around us. Because you get one run through in this fucking planet, man, and it's an incredible place. So, you know, like that's the thing that I would hope that people would take away from what I'm doing more than anything from the music, from the, the stories of the artists and all of these people would be to take care of yourself and to follow your own, like the wind of your own life. Let that fill your sails, not the voices of other people. So endeth the, the fucking ceremony or whatever the fucking sermon. Damn, that was beautiful. Like genuinely. Holy shit. Uh, I... 
I want to just say thank you again for joining me on the show. Before we thank go, you. let's uh, let's run down a quick little bit of plugs here. As always, you guys can check out the Voice of Survival podcast here every other Friday on the Journey into Comics Network. Get us on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Google Play Music, or Spotify. Just search Journey into Comics Network. Also, get us on Patreon at patreon.com backslash journey into comics. Give us a dollar for that early access and exclusive content goodness. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week's episode of Voice of Survival. Christian, thank you again one last time. Thank you, man. It uh, was, uh, meant a lot that you uh, reached out and wanted to talk to me. Thank you. I, I've been meaning to do this for a few years now, and it was just finally the right time. So I'm uh, grateful we've been able to finally cross paths yet again. My pleasure. Awesome. All right, folks. Well, for this week's episode of The Voice of Survival, I've been Nate, and we will see you guys next time. Later. Adios. from Death Clock, and uh, I just wanted to tell you guys about an event coming up in here pretty soon, March 23rd, Fun for Funs, it's a Journey in the Comics Network event. Oh yeah, and it's featuring Lee Pitkiss from Brews with Dudes, and Pitkiss Trophy, and Dungeons with Dudes, and Journey in the Comics. With performances by those jackasses in band number one, also, Boner Shelby, Walk Among Us, and Yesterday's Chips. I do not want to say the things about the, the comedians, the ones, the, the big Santa Claus's comedians, them's Patrick's Mercies. It's the live stand-ups guys that will be there at the North in pubs on March 23rd. Dr. Roxo, the Rock and Roll Club, baby. Here to tell you one last thing, man. You might have forgot about it, but doors are open in the three. We're gonna have podcasts at four. You're gonna pay ten dollars, baby, and it's twenty-one and up. That's a fact, Jack. Check it out.